Can we work just, on figuring that part out? Just change the whole thing all around and cut them out? Mm-hmm. Genius. Maybe I could Photoshop the audio somehow? I don't know. Hmm. 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 I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right, we're good to go. All right. right. Yeah. We, we have a script? Reese, um, did you bring anything? The script. What we are we going to talk about? I gave Corey the script as we were squatting. Oh. So he, it had all the questions that you were prepped for and everything. Does this happen a lot? Does Corey fuck shit up a lot? <laughs> no. He he's up? actually very reliable. He's usually organized. He is. Mm. Um, you know, we have our talking points. Um, it's on my <laughs> hand right here. So uh, whenever we get to those particular sections, <laughs> if I'm looking down at my hand a lot, it's because oh. I got to make sure. Hey, how cute are we, by the way? I'm wearing your shirt. <laughs> I'm wearing yours. We like we just became best friends. It's amazing. Did that just happen? Yeah. <laughs> we became like squat buddies. We're squat buddies. Squat pals. That was a good workout today. What do you think? Oh, that was an exceptional squat workout. A lot different than what you're used to. Like a lot of times uh, being a thrower, what kind of rep range are you normally using? So uh, when we get into the fall, we're probably around 10s for a couple weeks. So the way I I do it, I take about a month off and we basically have about two or three weeks of what I just call, we just go in the weight room and we're going to lift. So we're going to do all the lifts that we haven't done for a month. So we'll do bench, squat, and we'll do as high as 10s, 12s. And just to get my baby arms ready and my baby legs ready to do work, uh, we do that. And then actual real lifting starts in November. Right. And then, but most of the training is kind of devoted towards, um, I understand like the off season is probably not devoted towards that necessarily, but most of the training is devoted towards being explosive. Absolutely. Trying to be explosive. Um, For me and Corey, we give ourselves about three months uh, just to lift as heavy as we possibly can. And then from there, it's we go down to a specific weight, whatever it is. We'll, we'll kind of either it's 405, 385. And what we do is as long as I can do that for any rep range, if it's 10, 9, and not get super sore, then it's perfect. Right. Being a high-level athlete that has competed uh, in the Olympics before, what do you think about, you know, other athletes just, you know, just it seems like if other athletes just get in some strength training, like them actually being extremely strong um i don't i don't know it's not i don't want to say it's irrelevant Mm because it can matter right yeah but it's not like a prerequisite of a defensive end in the nfl to bench 500 pounds yeah although it probably won't hurt anything uh it's probably not it's probably not even a great thing to focus too much on because you might be losing some other aspect of fitness Mm -hmm. or some other aspect of uh what you should be working on and what you should be training um but for yourself you know, you develop tremendous amounts of strength, tremendous amounts of power, and you're very explosive, but you're probably not the strongest guy in all of the shot put, right? Yeah. You, oh, you mentioned no, no. there's some guys that bench like mid sixes, I think, right? Oh yeah. Uh, the Christian <clears throat> Cantwells of the world's or mid sixes, the Joe Kovacs of the world, who's world champion. He's in the mid sixes. So there are some exceptionally strong athletes and maybe that's your genetic makeup where you can do that. Right. Whereas myself. I, I just, if I went up there and tried to bet 600 pounds, I, it would crush me. It would right. take long periods of time to recover from that, which means it would affect the way that I threw the ball. Right. So for me, the most important thing is let's have a base amount of strength and let's be as powerful as we possibly can be. And that's, what's going to make the ball go really far. 
I know sometimes like a power lifter will kind of look at different athletes and throwers aren't really a great example because throwers are a lot of times are insanely strong. Yeah. But, um, in some cases of some other sports, maybe a baseball player, mm -hmm. maybe they, they hear a number of, uh, what a CrossFitter does or something like that. And it's like, well, look, you know, guys, you're talking about two things that are really, really different, yeah. you know, powerlifting, you're just training for the bench squat and deadlift. That's what we're responsible for on game day. That's what we do. Yeah. And they ask us just to do one rep. And a lot of times we'll have knee wraps on or knee sleeves. We've got some sort of other form of support. Yeah. Then also in like bodybuilding and in powerlifting, you can kind of choose what you want to do in terms of, uh, PEDs. You know, you can decide to, uh, push the limits, whatever, whatever way you want and you can get tested or not get tested. Yeah. And so sometimes you hear somebody else's numbers and, uh, an athlete, you know, maybe that's in the UFC, you know, maybe he does sets of, uh, five in a squat with, uh, 275. Yeah. But the guy weighs 200, you know, the guy weighs 200 pounds. And of course, it's not an exceptionally crazy strong squat. The point is that guy's working on what's heavy to him and, yes. and he's, and he's going through some sort of strength period. And so mm -hmm. I always try to, I think it's important to communicate that with people because I think they get the wrong, they get a misconception about strength training to where yeah. the weights have to be these huge numbers. And no, they don't have to be these huge numbers. First of all, do the lift the right way. Yeah have form, have technique, have your stuff be crisp. But if you're chasing down the numbers, you might be kind of pursuing the wrong thing. Oh, I, I totally agree. I, I've never been a person to chase numbers to a point. Now, the reason, bit crazy enough, the reason I benched 500 pounds was because we had a discus thrower from Canada and discus throwers, I don't really consider super strong athletes. He came in and did 500 pounds. And that put me on the road to saying, oh, I want to bench. I can't let this wimpy discus thrower be stronger from than me. Canada too. How I insulting. I know. And it, it, it was crazy. You know, he could go and he did it. And I was just like, I want to do it now. Is that a thing amongst <laughs> uh, throwers? Like did the shot putters and discus guys give each other a bunch of crap? Well, traditionally we like to think the shot putters are stronger than the discus throwers. <laughs> right. uh, but there are some crazy strong uh, discus throwers out there not to, to knock those guys. Right. But I think it's more in good fun. We're mm. just we're just trying to have fun, just something <laughs> right. to motivate ourselves. And uh, for me, I just at that moment I was young and and dumb, maybe I don't know. But I just I just did could not let that person be stronger than me. Does anybody ever do both? Are they way completely different things? Uh, it's two different kinds of movements. Uh, discus is a little bit longer. Um, I like to think that the rotation, you have to be more intellectually advanced in order to do that because everything goes so fast. Whereas in the discus, you have more time to think about it. It's a lot longer. So yeah. you don't, you don't have to be as smart. So what you're saying <laughs> is I'm intellectually challenged because I could never learn it. You know, I threw the shot put, uh, in high school and, uh, I, I threw, I threw pretty good, but I could never learn how to spin. And anytime I learned how to spin, I would just, first of all, I'd throw it, uh, not as far because I couldn't control it. Yeah. And then I'd, every time I'd end up out of the circle and my coach was like, this is the dumb. He's like, it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I don't know why he's like, I don't even know why we bother. And he kept trying to work with me on it. And it just, he's like, it's going to take, this is going to take too long. <laughs> and it, and it will potentially take you forever, but I am super stubborn when it comes to learning stuff. If right. I get it in my mind, I'm going to do it. I'm, it's, it's my life. I'm going to do it. Gosh, darn it. And that's, that's just, I, I wouldn't let it go. Uh, and I, I can't tell you how many times I failed trying to learn the rotation until I finally got it. And then it's like, okay, this is going to make it. Like right. when I first tried to learn to spin, 
my and in, in uh my junior year in high school i was horrible and then one day it kind of clicked mm-hmm. right before i went to the state championships i'm like well our coach is like okay i think it's time for you to spend i'm like well this is the biggest me of the year are you sure <laughs> like i'm a little bit more consistent gliding you know mm-hmm. maybe i should just no we're gonna spin and trust me i think i end up pring by uh, four or five feet wow and winning yeah, the state a, championship wow, a huge difference I'm watching myself throw I mean, shirtless and it's really <laughs> I mean, do you felt jacked that day though, right? That's the important. I, I, I did because this is the crazy thing. So I, I, I throw one of the best throws in the state of Georgia and these big six foot four, six foot five football players. And that's what you're going to get in the state of Georgia. Just these gigantic human beings. <laughs> like, hey, how much do you bench? And at the time I was like, well, I only bench, you know, 350 pounds. Or like, what? Three, 350. How did you throw so far? I'm like, I guess it's the power of the rotation. Growing up, uh, or once you kind of started getting, we'll get to your story in a minute, but yeah. like once once you got into um, shot put, uh, who were some of the guys that you were looking up to? Oh, my, so obviously Randy Barnes, who's the world record holder, uh, Brent Noon, who was kind of like my throwing idol, my throws coach, uh, when he was a younger coach, actually met him and got to be taught by him. Uh, who else? Uh, John Godina, obviously, mm. CJ Hunter. Um, Brian O'Field, a little bit of Al Fearbach in there. You know, I, I had a lot of throwing idols and just people that I could watch. And this is pre-internet, so I had uh, some videos that were smuggled into the state of Georgia <laughs> that uh, I just would watch every you know, single day. There's something so cool about stuff like that. We we talk about this kind of stuff a lot on the podcast. The harder it is to acquire uh, some of this kind of knowledge, yeah, uh, almost the better the result when somebody does learn it because they had to go through a lot of crap to figure out how to even get it. Oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, (laughs) I remember when they came out with a VCR that had the slow-mo function on it. So I was able to play a video in slow-mo and record it, dub it, if you will. And that just blew my, my, my world. So like I could take Randy Barnes world record throw and slow-mo frame by frame Mm. and record it on film. So, because I'd bring it home. Yeah. We didn't have that fancy of a VCR. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I could slow-mo and just watch Randy throw frame by frame, trying to figure out the secrets of the rotation. That's crazy. And then now you just, you know, boom, you just YouTube it and there it is. You you could go on YouTube and, you know, I, I feel like, and that was like, for me, the, the most awesome thing when you could start putting videos on the internet my biggest goal when I was in college is to have one of my throws on the internet because that lets you know that you have made it. If you act, if someone thought your throw was so great. That's so cool to think of it, you know, think of it in those terms now. Right. And there uh, were hundreds of throws of me now, but at that time just, and it was, uh, was yeah. it the throwfather.com. That was the website I was trying to get on. And I finally got like a random throw from Florida on there. And I was just like, I made it. I'm now a, a, a good thrower. You remember those forums back in the day? Like you could actually really learn a lot of great things. There was a lot of people that, that would chime in. And, and uh, I remember, you know, um, looking at that for powerlifting. And yeah. I would learn all kinds of stuff. I mean, there was some garbage on there too. It's the internet, right? But yeah. There was some really useful information on there. Somebody would talk about uh, their experience with a, with a uh, certain kind of training. And yeah. then I would, you know, research it. And I'd be like, oh, that's cool. I want to try that someday. That's, you can really learn a lot, you know? That's the crazy thing about information now. There's almost a, a oversaturation of information out there in any given sport that you want to do. 
and it's the ability to be able to look at that information and pull the crap out and then find the diamond in the turd a little bit. Yeah. And that that's that I think that's what kids have to do now. And that's when the I, name of this podcast, by the way. <laughs> the diamond in the turd. Reese so, Hoffman. So um And the title of your next book. It should be the title of the next book. But you know, for, for me, <laughs> as I like I talk to young throwers, I'm like, you can find any thrower in the world, but if you are, let's say you're five five, you don't need to throw like Ryan Krauser, who's six foot eight. Yeah, don't don't right. do his technique because he what he's trying to do and what you need to do to be become a successful thrower are two opposite things. Maybe look at me, who's six feet. That's closer to what you're probably going to yeah. need to do to make the ball go far. But you know, people get in their mind; they have to do it like the new sexy person, right? I feel like flipping this desk over right now because I talk about that all the time <laughs> on this podcast. I'm like, you have so so much access to so much video. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Larry wheels is the hot new thing in powerlifting. This guy's crushing weights. He actually bent six Oh five for a triple the other day <sighs> and it looked pretty easy. Plus he's shredded. He's doing a body, but I mean, he, the guy's on fire. He's doing, he's amazing. And, uh, who wouldn't want to be like him? Of course you want to be like him. But at the same time, uh, if you're not built like him, you don't have some of those genetics, you should probably, you know, look into having form that matches your body type a little bit more. I totally agree. And, you know, granted, you know, my technique is, may not be 100% ideal for everybody. I'm, I, I look at my technique and I see flaws everywhere. And I think that's, people see that all the time. Right. But the basics, basics of what I do, I think are really solid. And any thrower that would commit themselves to just doing those little things will probably be really successful and make the ball go somewhere. It's just a question of, can you convince them to do those little things to make them throw far? <laughs> so... Yeah, you know, it must have taken, you know, a long time to to refine your technique and refine the form and all mm-hmm. that. But, like, there's so much that can be learned from a sport, especially an individual sport. Yeah. Because you can't be like, oh, Rob over there, he missed, missed his block. And so that's why, you know, that's why the quarterback got sacked. That's why we lost the game because he fumbled yeah. and the other team returned it for a touchdown. You can blame other people. You can maybe, you know, blame blame the whole rest of the team, really, right? Yeah. But this is all you. Like this is all on you. And so you have to learn these lessons. And when it comes to, uh, your sleep, when it comes to stretching and it yeah. comes to these things, you didn't throw and you didn't perform as well as, as you wanted to perform yeah. because you didn't warm up enough because yeah. you didn't, uh, cool down enough. You didn't, whatever it was, you didn't do it enough yeah. and you sucked that day. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, when, when I used to throw or when I threw, it's a lot of self-reflection and knowing how to lose properly. And when I say losing properly is if I go to a meet and I don't perform up to my standard, you need to do some real soul searching. Like what did I not do that contributed to me not being able to perform at my best? Because I, I, I feel like I've always had the ability to go anywhere in the world and perform at a high level. Uh, I like I've, I flew to Doha and this is just for fun. Um, it's one of those competitions where I'm probably about four or five feet better, maybe even more than that, better than a competition. Nice. So I'm sitting there with one of the guys in our in the room, and I'm like, listen, I'm going to win this competition, but I'm not going to warm up. I'm not going to take a single throw. I'm just going to take competitive throws. End up doing it just, just as a mental exercise. But right. also there's some competitions where I'm going in there, and I'm playing the psych-out game. I'm just getting into everybody's head, telling them that they're not going to win, and... <laughs> figure stuff out like that it's crazy 
Yeah, it sounds it sounds like you have fun with it. Do you, you think to. do you think people struggle more with losing? Uh or do people struggle more with not being able to handle winning? I think it's losing. It's definitely losing. Yeah. Um I I have trained myself to be able to lose in a way that is positive. Um and it's like, well, I just missed this position, I hit that position next time, I'm gonna win. And not just harp on every single mistake you made that contributed to the loss. Let's look for positive ways to get your mind in the right place to be successful. So, I mean, I, I don't win everything. And right. that, that, that can't be the expectation. I'm going to win every single competition. But when there's a situation that arises and I should be successful, usually I'm going to be, I'm going to be very successful. Is because, and it's more through the losses and everyone telling me that I shouldn't do something and I, I find a way to win. Every time I lose, but also every time I succeed, I gain something positive on both of those experiences. Right. I think sometimes too, when it comes to, uh, you know, people have a tendency to overanalyze when they lose and then underanalyze when they win. Yeah. Like you're saying in this particular competition, it was more for fun and, uh, you threw X amount of feet uh, yeah. further than these other guys. Um, and so sometimes when people win, they win by large margin. They don't really, you know, they don't really pay attention to the little things that got them to be able to throw so far in the first place. Well, that was just more of a situation that I needed in, in the terms of where I was in the, the season. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I was going to win. I needed to challenge myself even more for that win. Got it. Yeah. Um, cause you know, I, the way I do my seasons there are, I pick meets that are very easy for me to win just to start off to kind of like kick the tires, that kind of thing. And then as the season goes on, I, my goal is to be in the hardest, competitions against the best competition in the hardest environments to throw far and find ways to throw far because if if you cannot like i've been to meets where it's like they don't give you a warm-up though and you gotta throw so you have to know it how to go in that situation and be successful i've been in, in situations where you're throwing in a parking lot you have to like in most people that would get in their mind they don't know how to be successful in that environment it's commonplace i'll figure out i'll put water on my shoes i will kick some dirt up, put grass on my shoes, anything to make my shoes more slippery in that environment. That is, and I've lost in those situations where I went to a ring, it was too fast. I didn't know how to do it. I freaked out, lost. I'm like, well, I need to learn how to be more successful in that environment. But So I gained something positive from that loss. Uh, what was your mindset going into competitions like that? Like if the environment was way different as you became more seasoned, as you become a veteran, did you kind of have like these rules for yourself where you're like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not thinking anything negative. I'm not saying anything negative about, uh, you know, how the field is. I'm not saying anything negative about how the footing is yeah. uh, to myself. And then, but maybe to other people, maybe to psych them out. You're like, man, that's a crap ring today. Like, I don't know what's going on with it, but it's <laughs> shitty out there. Uh, you, if you're trying to win, you've got to convince yourself that it's not as bad as it is. Uh, it's just a little slow. It's not, oh, this is super, super slow. I'm not going to be able to do this. and you just figure out a way to make it work. And I think that's just the goal is just you look at it. You, As you were saying, you, you just got to be really positive all the time in your mind. And sometimes you do have to play the psych out game. I mean, I, I've done competitions where I fake like I am really, oh, yeah, I did that heavy. I, I'm not going to be throwing far today. And that ring is going to be way too slow for me to throw. And, oh, gosh, it's going to be horrible. And I'll go and just... I'll throw, I'll warm up really bad to see you guys, man, I'm just not going to throw very well. 
And then I'll just all of a sudden, I'll, I'll flip a switch and I'm throwing really far and it just shocks them. They're like, what, what is that? You said you were not doing that good. And I'm like, well, that must have been a lucky throw. You know, <laughs> you just, you, you play to, like, I'm playing to the crowd. Right. Yeah. Um, do you think, you know, what do you think separates out somebody you, you uh, were able to become, you're a highly decorated athlete and you yeah. were able to become a uh, bronze medalist in the Olympics. What do you think separates out someone that makes it to that level versus someone that doesn't? Is it maybe the mindset of this is going to, this is probably going to take me a long time Mm -hmm. and I'm okay with that. You know, transitioning from one season to the next Mm -hmm. and figuring out ways of getting better. Like, yeah, I can get better, but it's probably going to take a while. Like you're not going to rest until Mm -hmm. the job is done. You know, when it comes to throwing, it does take years. So I was successful, pretty successful, you know, before I kind of made a breakthrough in six and 10. So I had to just say, you know what, I'm not going to be as good as this person for a little bit, but I'm eventually going to catch them. So the mindset that you have to have to be an Olympic caliber athlete is number one, you have to have a, a mind to handle defeat, the, a mind that says, it's okay to lose, mm. even at a world championship and even at an Olympic Games. Um, it's okay to lose because you got to get this experience because you're not you're not that person. Um, because it's really really easy to compare yourself to another person that is successful. I'm I'm not that person, so I can't do what they're doing because it's easy. I, you know, you can look at Krauser and Krauser he eats five chickens every day and eats you know <laughs> a million eggs. And you're like, I'm going to be Krauser, so I'm going to do that. And, you know, Krauser comes out, and he, he, he doesn't do a stand throw. He does, uh, he runs, you know, uh, five miles before he competes. And, and you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be that guy. That's what, that's what you have to do to be a champion. And that's not really the case. You've you got to do you. So you can look at what he does, and you can maybe pick out something like, instead of eating five chickens, I'm only going to have one, because that, <laughs> my digestive system can handle one. And you do that, and then you become successful. But you kind of have to, it's kind of like a trial and error. You've got to learn how to be successful. And there is no, there, there's nothing that, no piece of paper, nothing you can read. There's not a video you can watch that's going to make you great. Because to get to, we're all unicorns. I'm a unicorn. A handsome a, unicorn. A handsome <laughs> unicorn. Add. There are a lot of unicorns out there that do, that throw. And everyone does it in so many different ways. You, you know, as they, there's only one unicorn, one unique unicorn, so there's no two unicorns. So you got to find the unicorn that is you and be the greatest unicorn you can be. That makes a lot of sense. Did you have a mentor going through this process? Do you have, uh, or just, you know, a coach or someone kind of leading you through it? Because I, I think in these type of sports, mm-hmm. like if you don't have a good coach, it's, mm-hmm. it's going to be really hard. So I did have a throw Sherpa. Um, his name is Don Babbitt. And he, we just, we kind of learned as we went. So he had coached um, a few athletes before me. Um, he was at Cal State LA and did some work there, came to Georgia, and I came along. So Don uh, definitely helped a, a lot in terms of building a foundation in terms of, and he's um, very well-versed in all things. Like he's got like a photographic memory. Oh, shit. So he knows all everything that's really got to be done. Like this guy did this far, and this is what's going to make him a top 10 in the world. And then the second person I would say would be Adam Nelson, a uh, fellow Georgia guy, went to Dartmouth, came back, uh, went to California for a little bit, and then came back to Georgia and trained with me 
And when he came in, he was the world, he was the, right after he won the Olympic silver medal and then won like a world silver medal. So he was like kind of the guy I looked up to and thank goodness that he was there because he knew exactly kind of what you need to do outside of the training part of it. When you're on the road, you know, what do you need to eat? Where do you need to go? Right. Those kind of things. And, you know, Don never really traveled with me abroad unless it was like Olympic or world championships. So having someone like that to say, well, don't eat that because that's going to make you sick is, is huge and incredibly beneficial for having a successful career. Did any of these coaches end up becoming like father figures or anything that they kind of, you know, she ended up traveling with them and then you end up spending a lot of time uh, with each other, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, me and Don, you, you, if you, if you don't have a very close relationship with your coach where it's just a guy that you go see, it's going to be really hard. I mean, me and Don have spent many of many of days just sitting in a hotel room in Germany, uh, drinking a few snops of so, and, uh, just talking, throwing about life, uh, dreams, all, all this kinds of stuff. Um, I think other than, I guess my mama, she probably knows me about as well as anybody. Yeah. Mama's boy. A little bit, you know. <laughs> you, I, so, I you am. Know. <laughs> I got to admit, I'm a mama's boy. She, Can't help it. She, you know, both my parents. I mean, I, you, you get everything from your parents, you know. But, you know, my my mom, and she will always have, my, my mom will always have a special place in my heart. So I was adopted. So when you're going through that process, you are afraid a lot. That's what I would say. Because you're going into a brand new house, a new environment, and she made that transition as flawless as it possibly could be. You know, giving me the the hugs and words of encouragement, taking the extra time to teach me the how to read alphabet, and just make it generally through life. Um, she is just as important as my dad, who taught me really how to be an athlete, really. But she's just like that foundation, like. I don't know what kind of person I would be if I didn't have that person in my life because I'd probably be an absolute mess. Do you think that you would ever adopt a child? Absolutely. That's that is the thing is it's, it's not if it's when right. I'm definitely me and my wife. That's what we talked about. We're going to have our just a natural child because she's she's under the belief that it would uh, we'd be depriving the world if. My genetics was not out into the world in a smaller <laughs> 2000 version. Spreading the seed, I'm well Spread, aware. Spreading the seed. <laughs> and absolutely, I, I look forward to adopting a kid because I went through that process. I, I, I think that's, so a I can real, relate. that's like a, I, to call it, to say it's cool is like not the right word, but it, it, I guess it's a really amazing thing. You know, that, that people do, you know, like a, oh, yeah. a, you, you take on another person, you know, in your household. And a lot of times, uh, people have, you know, other kids that they've already had or other kids they may have already adopted. And, yeah. um, you kind of don't know exactly what you're getting yourself into. I mean, nowadays they share a lot more information and stuff, but, uh, the people out there that adopt people, I, I've just, I think it's an amazing, that's an amazing thing to do to, for somebody because you're really, um, you're changing somebody's life. Yeah. You know, you're yeah. changing somebody's life in a huge way. You know, for me, um, I, I, I wouldn't have made it to college. I wouldn't have been as successful an, of an athlete if I was not adopted. Um, I got to meet my birth brother, my brother, and 
you know, he went a completely different direction. He did not graduate from high school and ended up going to jail and all that kind of craziness. Is that your only other sibling? It's the only other sibling. Well, I mean, my mom had two other kids after that, but of the, what I would consider sibling wise, he was the only other one. So me and him, we were in the orphanage together and all that kind of thing. And uh, just seeing he got adopted back into our family by an aunt. And then I end up just being put in this family. <clears throat> and I definitely feel like I got the, I got the most out of it. And when I, you know, I eventually found my mom again when I was, when I graduated or my junior year in, high, in college. And uh, she actually got to see me graduate. That was, you know, talk about like, I want to give somebody the life that I can't provide. You got advantage. I got to tell you, you got two moms. <laughs> I do have two moms, um, which is going to be really trippy to explain to our kids. Like, this is my mom. And, and I have, yeah. they're designated as my A mom and B mom. So my A mom is my adoptive mom and B mom is my birth mom. <laughs> so that right. they have that. <laughs> right. Yeah, they'll be able to organize their, their thoughts in, in that way. Um, when, uh, when, your mo- when your mom uh, adopted you, something happened uh, before that and you were really young and you kind of thought that's what led to you being put up for adoption, right? Yeah. So when I was uh, probably around three, my brother went and picked me up from the uh, daycare. And as we're walking down the road, he finds a lighter on the ground. He picks it up, brings it home and decides late at night when my parents put us to bed, you know, we get up cause we're kids and he's lighting strings on the, um, on a curtain and putting it out with water. And he ran out of water and I don't know why he didn't take the lighter with him. He put it on the bed being the younger brother wanted to do everything the older brother's doing. I decided I wanted to light it and I had incredible dexterity, which, you know, and I got the thing to light. I lit a a string on fire and burned down our house. Wow. And then uh, a couple of months later, my, you know, I'm in an orphanage. So obviously that was traumatic. And I was like, well, this is the reason I'm in the orphanage. The reason I'm put up for adoption is because I was an evil and bad kid. And I burned down my house. Do you remember a lot of that? Oh, absolutely. Well, when something like that, well, you're always, I feel like you're always going to remember a fire and, you know, I was the person that caused the fire, but I remember that whole process of burning down my house. And then we kind of were bouncing around to my father had a, my, my dad had a house. So we stayed there for a little bit and we stayed at a grandmother's house. Um, I remember the day before we went to the orphanage. So my mom went on a date with a, a random guy and we're in a hotel and she comes back and. She's super happy, and then all of a sudden, we um, she's like, okay, we're going to go for a ride, to, and we, we get on the car, we drive to the adoption agency, and I didn't know it was an adoption agency, and, you know, we're playing with toys because we're kids, and then uh, she gets up and, and follow right behind my mom, and then all of a sudden, like, three people come up behind me, and I'm like, that's kind of weird, and then uh, I give my mom a hug, and then she walks down the stairs, so I'm about to follow her, and then these three guys just grab me from behind and drag me into this adoption agency, and um, obviously I'm you know crying for like a day, and I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I'm there. Um, they separated because I was three, and my brother was six. They separated us, and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I remember like we're in a we're, we go into like a, a four bump bed room, and they just put me in there. And I'm bawling, and then I think it was like four days later, 
my mom comes back. I'm like, oh, well, all is forgiven. And, you know, maybe I didn't realize this. She just took me to another orphanage, which was the St. Vincent, St. Thomas um, orphanage. Drops me off again. This time she doesn't give me a hug. She just, we just go in a room and I'm playing on a little, little wormy thing and riding the big wheel around. And then they take me into another room and say, all right. And then I go crazy again. And they had to put me in a containment room because I was being very, dis- you know, destructive. I was a pretty strong kid. So I'm right. pushing kids and uh, breaking stuff. Wreaking and havoc. I was wreaking havoc. I was causing chaos. And, um, you know, eventually while I was in the orphanage, uh, me and my, they like, we can't deal with this kid. He's going crazy. And they're like, oh, he's got a brother. Maybe he can help control him a little bit. And then once I was hanging out with my brother, it made it much better. But, you know, he's with like the six and 12 year olds and they're like, and I'm three, Mm. but that was the only way they could keep me under control. Cause anytime I was away from my brother, I was just really just, I was chaotic. It was, it was crazy. And then when you got it, your brother, you guys still went your separate ways though from the orphanage. Well, I didn't, you know, they don't explain that to you. I mean, I don't know if it, it's really hard to explain to a four-year-old yeah, yeah. The, the whole process. So, um, and, and weird for me is like, since I was incredibly cute, I, I was very, very cute kid. I went on a lot of home visits, so I would go visit people's homes and just have a ball. I went to Cincinnati Reds, uh, Cincinnati Reds games and went to circuses and got ice cream. And I'd come back, and my brother was always there, and I just thought that was just going to be the process. So while I was out there, I was having a good time. And then one day at the, the Hoffa's house, my, my parents' house, they're like, hey, Reese, you know, we, and I'd visit them, did long visits, stay for a week. And they're like, hey, we'd love to adopt you do you want to come be a, uh, would you like to stay with us? And my first instinct was, no, I don't want to stay here because my brother wasn't there. And they're like, are you sure? And I'm like, okay, this is really fun because they lived on a farm. So I got to play with cows and chickens and play in hay and nice. uh, got to run around and all kinds of stuff. And I you know, eventually said yes. And during that process, I thought, surely they're going to adopt my brother too. And then it never happened. Mm. And then you're just like, well, I'm already here. And I'm having a good time. And then at that point, you know, we moved. We moved from Kentucky to Georgia. And, and then there's not much you can do. Is your brother ugly? He's definitely not as good looking <laughs> as me. Um, but he, I guess he's a good looking guy. <laughs> um, did you uh, have resentment for your mom? You know, as, as you got older, you know, when you kind of started to realize like, oh man, like my mom took me somewhere and other people took me and... Mm-hmm. Did you, did that build up at some point? No, um, I never resented my mom because I always blamed myself for the situation I was in because I felt like I I burned down the house. She didn't have a choice. You you know, I guess you just kind of think that since it was my fault, I I should have to live with it. Um, the hardest part was being separated from my brother. So um, from a very young age, I would write down random numbers all the time, trying to because I understood the concept of a phone. And that you just push numbers in there and then you would all of a sudden you would be in contact with people, which was mystifying to me. I'd never seen a phone before. And so I would just write down random numbers. Um, Even when I got older, I would look through phone books. When I was in college, um, I looked up my last name, which was Chisholm. I knew my brother's first name was Lamont. And I wrote, I think it was 10 letters to Lamont Chisholm in Kentucky in hopes that maybe he would contact me. Hmm. And... We could be reunited and see what's going on with him. And so for me, when I met him and then heard about like his life, that was also pretty hard 
Um, I've always been very forward thinking and always trying to progress myself and someone that just kind of stays in one place and doesn't really have a lot of drive was very hard for me mentally for a while. Yeah. I mean, I, you, you must have, uh, have must have had even some guilt, even though obviously it has nothing to do with anything you yeah. did. Right. Um, I, I mean, I, I felt guilty that, and I didn't, when I met him, I just thought he was, he was adopted and, but uh, then just hearing, like hearing his stories, like, yeah, my, our aunt adopted us. My mom who left from Kentucky to Connecticut actually came back to raise him for a little bit. And I guess he was a little bit of a hellion. He has a little bit of me and me and, um, she couldn't deal with it. And he ended up going to her grandmother's house, going everywhere. Mm. Um, and then just just seeing that he just you know he works at the you know Kentucky Fried Chicken and right. it's like you're older you were both I mean we're pretty athletic like he played basketball and then all of a sudden you figure like I, I didn't even graduate high school I'm just like what? what and he's like well the reason I didn't do it is because you weren't there it's like well I you weren't in my life and <laughs> right. I figured out a way it's just it was very hard for me to conceptualize that and um, so. I just, I felt bad for him, but I'm like, you kind of did it to yourself a little bit. Right. So maybe it's a very hard view, but that's just how I look at it. Did he uh, maybe grow up uh, like less fortunate, like, like in terms of like uh, finances, like the people that you went with, maybe they're not rich or whatever, but like, uh, do you think that played into it a little bit where he just didn't have the same opportunities perhaps? Well, I mean, both of my aunts were uh, mechanical engineers, so they, they had money. He ain't got no excuse. Yeah, no excuse. I, I mean, they were both mechanical engineers. I mean, they right. They 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 would offered him. I, I'm assuming a, a great life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I kind of resent that not taking the opportunity. So when I found my mom, she was like, "Well, you have all these aunts and uncles that would love to meet you." And I tried to talk to them, but I just felt really uncomfortable. You know, going there, I felt like it would be betrayal to my adoptive parents. Oh. Um, that was, you know, talking to my mom about, Hey, uh, found my birth mom. Um, and I'm probably going to get on a plane and go visit her. And I, I, I just, just to hear the, just the pain of like, I'm about to be replaced, aren't I? Mm. And I'm like, no, you're not going to be replaced. You're it's just, it just, there's so many questions. Yeah. Um, health questions like, am I, you know, like, I guess that's part of like why I didn't drink as much alcohol is like, am I susceptible to alcoholism? If I start, you know, I don't know how it how it works. So yeah, I'm like, yeah. I'm, I gotta better stay away from this. Am I going to have a heart attack because it's in my genetics, right. that kinds of stuff. And then, you know, talking to my mom, you know, she's like, no, you're, we, you don't have any of that stuff. You're, you know, everybody in our family is healthy as a horse. So you're like, oh, well, that's good to know. Well, I wish they would have put that in the paperwork when you get adopted. <laughs> Right. So, and that's, uh, that's, that's really, really, uh, that's really wild when you, so when you, uh, you know, had the opportunity to meet your mom, what was, what did you start kind of asking her? Oh, just, you know, just the, the basic stuff. Where was I, where, where did I live? Uh, who's, you know, do you, do you know where my dad is? Um, and you know, that stuff like that, you know, look at baby pictures. I kept it as simple as, as possible just for for her herself right so i like for her she didn't really want to know about so i was in a a biracial so i'm the only black person in our family Hmm. so just the struggles of that my my mom's like i don't want to know about that i just want to know about all the positives and and what (laughs) i see and it's like okay hey 
to each his own. And right. I can I can play that game. You know, if you only want to keep it positive, then I, I keep it positive. So that is the kind of relationship that we have. It's just anything positive and great I do, I talk to her. I don't talk to her about any struggles that I have, identity and all this other craziness. I just keep it very platonic and we talk about the fun stuff, you know, about her kids and what they're doing. They're playing tennis and all kinds of stuff like that. Did you ever ask her why? Yeah, I asked. I mean, that was the, the when I got, when I placed the phone call to her or when she called me when I was studying for an anatomy exam in college, the first thing I said was, I apologize for burning down our house and you having to put me up for adoption. And then she's like, that was not the reason you, you got put up for adoption. I was 14 when I had my first kid. And this is in middle school. And then at 16, my sophomore year in, in high school, I had you. And it was a struggle. Like She's like, this was back in the 70s where they were implementing uh, car insurance. And she had to pay for car insurance. And then she's like, I had no money because, you know, because of, of what they're implementing. I knew that I could not support two kids with the income that I had, even though she had like my grant, we would stay at my grandmother's house and all that kind of stuff. She just, she knew she could not give us the life that we, she felt like we deserved. And when she found out that I was an athlete, like she, my brother and my mom, since they kind of lived together, they, my brother, he actually had visited my house when, during the adoption process. So he kind of had a general idea of where we used to live. So they went back to see if I was still there um, because my mom was curious and maybe wanted to have a relationship with me at the time. And then, you know, I ended up moving and they had no idea that I would become an athlete. They, they had no idea that I would be, you know, go to college and do all these things. So when she, when I, when I told her what I was doing, she's like, my goodness, I can't believe this. You're, you're a star athlete and you're going to, you're about to graduate from college. And that, this is unbelievable. So like when I was up in Indiana, we went to IU and, I thought about enrolling into grad school just to be closer to her, to have a, a little bit more of a relationship with her. But, you know, I go up there and it's freezing cold and it's snow on the ground. <laughs> and it was just a little bit, it was a little bit weird. I was just like, you know, I'm not comfortable here, but uh, it's, I still want to have you part of my life. So I, you know, we phone calls, she comes visits from time to time, that kind of thing. Mm. Are you a strong believer in uh, fate? I do. Like a lot of things, just they just, it just happened for a reason. You know, I, your brother, your brother picked up that lighter that one day for some, who the hell knows why. Yeah. I think fate, um, was definitely in play. So when, uh, in my adoptive family, I was the only one to go to college and my parents are incredible. It's just sometimes my brothers and sisters decide to do crazy things. Um, and I like to think that God put me in that position to just kind of reaffirm like, hey, what you're teaching your kids is actually good stuff, that it actually makes them into productive people. And we're giving you this gift of this kid that's not your own to show you like, hey, you can raise someone and they can be great and spectacular and carry on the Hoffa name. I'm really big about, you know, the name and mm. that kind of thing. And, you know, when you lose your name, because when I, before I was adopted, my name was Maurice Antoine Chisholm. So all of a sudden that's taken away and you're like, well, what am I? Um, so when I was four, I got to choose my name, which was pretty cool. Uh, my favorite uh, TV show was Knight Rider <laughs> and the, the person I wanted to be was Michael Knight. 
so when they asked me, hey, what do you want your name to be? I said, well, I want my name to be Michael Knight after my favorite TV show. And they're like, well, you can't be Michael Knight, but you can be Michael. Michael's my first name. I just go by Reese. And um, instead of Maurice, they're say, they decided to shorten it to Reese. So I feel like there's a lot of power in the name, like mm-hmm. Hoffa. I didn't know that Hoffa was this really, like Jimmy Hoffa and all that kind of <laughs> right, stuff. Right, right. So for me, I just wanted to make sure that the Hoffa name carried some serious weight just in, in high school. And then all of a sudden, you make it great. For, you know, anyone that hears Hoffa, I like them to think, oh, that person's amazing. So that's kind of the way I lived my life in a way, is just kind of just make their name. Like, they gave me this home. They gave me the last name of Hoffa. I wanted to make sure that when any anyone that ever heard that name was going to say, that person is awesome. I want, I want to take time to meet that Hoffa person. And I feel like in some ways I've been able to succeed doing that. You know, it's an interesting perspective that you did it from such a positive way. I know there's other athletes and other people who've done it almost from a negative way where they had to chip on her shoulder about something happened. Mm-hmm. Um, Shaquille O'Neal is like that. Like Shaquille O'Neal, you know, he kind of reunited with his dad, with his dad when he's older and things like that. But, um, and I don't think that's his birth name either. I think he went through some different people and stuff like yeah. that. But his dad, I guess, basically walked out in the family when he was young and he was like, you know what? I'm going to figure out like, you're going to, you're going to know who I am. Like, I might not know who you are or where you are because you left us at such a young age, but you're going to, you're going to like, you're going to feel me basically. You're going to know who I am because I'm going to be such a badass at something. And then he became, (laughs) he became Shaq, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, for me, like the only one, and maybe this is adoptive thing, but I would just one day like to meet my dad just to say, Hey, this is what your seed has produced. Um, and my older brother has actually, after we were adopted or whatnot, has had the opportunity to meet him. And, um, and he posed the question to him. It's like, Hey, you know, he would love to meet you. And he just flats out refuses. Like, no, um, I can't meet this person. And I, I just, to me, it just seems so weird. Like, I don't want anything from him. I don't like, I'm not going to ask for money. I just want to meet the person that created me to see the male version of me in a way. Right. And it, it, it kind of hurts a little bit that he's like, no, I don't want to meet this person. I want to, I don't want to have any, any interaction with them, which is kind of tough because, you know, my dad loves me to death. And I'm right. just like, if you're a, like, he, I mean, I feel like a father, you want to know your kids a little bit. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that was his decision. And, I respect it. Hey, I mean, maybe my celebrity is just too much for him to handle, but hopefully before he passes away, you know, I'm in my forties now, he must be in his sixties or seventies. It would just be, even if it's on his deathbed, just like, Hey, it was, you know, now that I got to know who you were, it was just kind of cool to see what you've done in your life. I'm so proud of you. You're right. Not not much. And then we could leave with that. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably painful for him, I would imagine, you know, in some way, you know, he probably just, just wants to just Uh, not, not have it be a thing or whatever, you know, or too emotional or. Well, this is the thing. This is the, the position I think he doesn't want out there. And I'm, the circumstances of my birth are not the 100% most positive. Mm. And I know there is a lot of shame in what he had done 
And that is probably why he doesn't want to have a relationship. I, it just, you have to answer to what he had done and he doesn't want that to happen. I'm not going to say what it is because who knows, he could be watching and listening to this and I don't <laughs> want to out the guy, but yeah, yeah. there was probably a lot of shame in, in how right. the circumstances of my birth. <laughs> wow. Fucking wild ass story. Yeah. So, but the household you did grow up in, the people that did adopt you, you felt enough love and felt enough attention. Oh, absolutely. Um, my, my dad is probably the strongest person and it's just not, not really physically. He's not, he's only like five, eight, but he is just this strong person that just, I feel like he just, he had tons of love. What's his strongest lift? Give us his numbers. <laughs> strongest lift. Well, my, you know, my dad is more like the, uh, woodland, like he cut, he's like cuts down trees, oh, farmerish okay. kind of person. Doesn't really lift weights. Manly man. There he's we go. Like, he's kind of a manly man. And those guys you don't want to mess with either. They got weird strength. They do have weird strength. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but taught me a lot on how to be a functioning male person. Just respect of women, respect of yourself, respect of older people, uh, just kind of how to how you should live your life. Your word means something kind of guy. Mm. And um, really just foundation of sports he was you know he's a he was a good baseball player and obviously i played baseball but you know he's one of those guys that would just stop for a moment and hey let's go throw a football let me teach you how to throw a football real quick or I'll, hey, let's go and like i was trying i was trying for baseball and he literally took two weeks of teaching me back doing batting practice and throwing when i tried out for basketball he's a really good basketball player when i did basketball he would just take time you know, after his long day, he gets up at like four o'clock in the morning, gets home at five thirty, exhausted. <laughs> but then, you know, he'd be like, "Hey, I know you're about to try for the basketball team. Hey, let's let me teach you how to do um, a left-handed layup, or let me let's let's work on your jump cool. shot real quick." You know, he's one of those kind of guys. I'm just like, and I, I ate it up. I'm like, this this is so awesome. Hey, he's just he was super involved. He never missed a single game wow. that I played. And it didn't matter if it was a monsoon storm. <laughs> I remember my dad sitting, I'm playing football. He has those little Kroger bags, just enough to cover his head, watching me in a monsoon play football. And, but he's also my, my most, uh, he will criticize everything I do, though. <laughs> Why didn't you tackle that guy? Or um, I remember uh, in eighth grade, while I, was, I did track and field and played baseball, uh, I was in a shopping competition. And I got frustrated and I kicked the ball. My dad's like, you should never do that. That's disrespecting the sport. I'm like, well, what do you just end up? You know, it's not a big deal. He hated, like, he hated when I, like, uh, would celebrate on making a, a crazy sack. He's like, Reese, you gotta, you gotta act like you've been there before. Mm -hmm. like, but, you know, you don't, sacks are, it's so hard to yeah. get. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Those kinds of things. But he would also, um, I was offensive lineman. We get the book. He would be, he'd be the person out there running plays with me. Once your parents adopted wow. you, um, yeah. How long did it take before, like, you kind of let your guard down? Because I'd imagine going through everything Ooh. with your your biological mom. You know, she's left and then she came back and then He's she left still again. Still working on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, let my guard down. Um, it took a, I'd say five or six years. Wow. Um, just to, to be comfortable being in a new home. Mm -hmm. Um, I went from being with my brother to being in a family of four kids. Oh. Um, so 
you understand like the pecking order, like this, like the older person's in control when the parents aren't there and all that kind of stuff. And just being comfortable being in a room with another person. Um, that must've been hard too, when you're like eight, nine years old. And now, you know, I, I know it's now your brother, but, or sister or whatever, Yeah. but they're now kind of in charge of you while mom and dad go to the grocery store or whatever. And you're like, oh, yeah. What is this shit? Like, are you not in charge of me? Right? <laughs> no, it was, it was more a bunch like, of crap. You don't know me. My older, <laughs> my older brothers and sisters were in charge of us like all summer. Like my parents were, were working class. So my mom and yeah. dad went to work every day and they would be in charge. Like my sister would literally lock us outdoors. Like, okay, everyone outside, you can't come inside until five o'clock before your, my mom and dad come home. And she would just, we had a little table outside. Like, can I get a granola lunch. bar or something? <laughs> just, can't we, just put me out here like this. You can, you can go inside if you have to go to the bathroom. And, oh, we had, um, we have sick, we have uh, 10 minutes where you can take a nap. That's the only time we can go inside. Now, the rest of the time you're outside. And this is in Georgia. Where you 10 minute to, nap. I like 10 that. minute nap. You get to go inside because her, her excuse is we would mess, you know, we're kids and we mess up everything. She's like, I get the house nice and perfectly clean. I do everything I'm supposed to do. I don't want you hellions coming in the house, <laughs> knocking over stuff and getting, getting every, Cause you know, you're a kid, you get yeah. water everywhere. You're knocking over <laughs> trash cans. Um, how, how, uh, old, how much older was she? Oh, she was, let me see. If I was four, she was like 13. Oh, okay. So she was, so by the time she was taking care of us, when we moved to Georgia, she was like 15 years old. My brother was, uh, 14. So they, had a good handle of our house and we had our neighbors that also kind of checked in on us if you want to call it that mm. did you ever feel like uh the other siblings were more loved or anything weird like that just because maybe they're biological or yeah um i mean obviously that's that that goes through your mind um when you're the only one you always know that you're the special one so um i remember when i got glasses and i was like the only one in my family to have glasses um and it wasn't never intentional, but and I was very rough and tumble. I break like, my now glasses. I'm all sticking the... out really bad. This I'm is really ridiculous. sticking out. And I'm you... not the same color as everybody. Now I got glasses. No. What's next? What's just next? give me a big red Rudolph nose while we're at it. If I had a lisp, if I had a crazy lisp, that would have just completed it. <laughs> but no, um, you. I have a a love hate relationship with the, my sister, who's nearly the same age. She's six months older, and four six months she can tell me what to do. Kind of <laughs> BS. <laughs> but other than that, you know, I think we're we're probably the closest. My younger brother, God bless his soul, because I would terrorize him a little bit. Because it's like an older brother, younger brother dynamic. I just, oh man, I never let him win at anything. And my my little sister, I just I just might as well not even play with her. And then my older brother and sister, they were so much they were so much older, you couldn't do anything. And like my older brother and sister could literally beat me up, so <laughs> you know, the only person closest is my sister. So we're probably the, the closest out of anybody in our family because we're so close in age. Um, you know, fast forwarding, you know, kind of out of that position and fast forwarding to you, you know, um, breaking records and uh, becoming, you know, well-known and stuff. How was that received kind of in the household? Like as you, uh, you know, as you became a teenager and as you started, uh, you know, getting, you know, probably in local newspapers mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, what do the other siblings and household kind of feel about it? Um, obviously my parents were ecstatic. Um, I think both my mom and dad loved that I was doing really, really great and doing great things. Uh, my brothers and sisters, well, my younger brothers and sisters, they, I don't know, I guess they were cool. 
<laughs> my my middle sister, on the other hand, her name is Jeanette. Um, there, you know, we're gonna butt heads on that. So <laughs> right. she did. She hated that I was so good at some, at at everything I did. Because you're all going through the same school too. We're right? going through even the same the, school. Even yeah. though they're older, and you know, you're the 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 little brother, and now you're really kicking ass. And you're, mm-hmm. I mean, shit, man, being being uh, on track to be uh, an Olympic athlete is. You know, it's it's crazy thing. So they must have been like, you know, this is, and I know you're playing football and doing other things. Too, yeah, I'm but. playing football. I'm wrestling. I did a little base, dabbled in baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, like my, I, I think my sister, she was the person that helped me stay level headed on this. Mm-hmm. She never let me get ahead. Uh, she like, when you have six kids in a house, um, and you don't, you're working class, you don't have a lot of money. So my parents were like, when you turn 16, you have to get a job and then you kind of support yourself trying to teach you life goal, life, life skills. Cause you know, when I was in middle school, I told my parents, I'm going to go to college. So they're like, Hey, we need to help you up. So you got to get a job when you turn 16. So I paid for, you know, gas in my car, my car insurance. And then I started paying for my, my own clothes and meals at school. And, um, a lot of that was pushed by my sister because she's like, well, I had to do this a couple of times, so he's got to do it too. And I'm an inherent people pleaser. So, it, you know, she didn't follow it all the way, but I'm like, well, if that's what you want me to do, I'm going to do it. And I always made it work. Like she, she hated me be more because I would get a job and I would just, you know, trickle my way up and make, you know, crazy and pretty for a, yeah, high I understand good money for a high schooler. <laughs> so it drove her crazy. Like everything she tried to do to make it harder. I just found found an easier way to make it done. It just drove her nuts. <laughs> and, you know, and we laugh about it now. She's like, I don't know why I was doing that. That was just me being stupid. I don't know. <laughs> but now it's just, you know, but now, you know, she's doing her own thing and she's just 100%. Everybody in my family is like, oh, we're just so happy you're doing great things and uh, would love to just do what I do. That's cool. Did some of them uh, end up traveling to some of your competitions and stuff as you uh, started progressing, you know, into world championships and different things like that? Um, only my mom. Um, and that was just more because like the NBCs and TV stations were like, we would really like to have your mom a part of this adventure. Mm. So, and, and she, she played her part. She understood what it was all about. So she would, you know, sit down, do her interview. She was mic'd up for the Olympic trials in 2012 mm, and cool. all that kind of stuff. Um, she did some stuff with Johnson and Johnson and, you know, you know, I, my mom is an absolute trooper. Like she would come up and do these interviews for these people right after work. Mm. She would drive the you know hour and a half, two hours to come to Athens and, and talk. And she, she's awesome. Or she, we did like a photo shoot with Johnson and Johnson and she, it was like five hours of people just taking pictures wow. of us. And she just, okay, this is so great. That's and you know, my mom's awesome. <laughs> Both my moms, actually, but my adopted mom and birth mom were doing this kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. Cause the, you know, you watch the Olympics that they are, they always give you the story. You yeah, know, they always give you that that story of you know uh, you know how this guy came to be sort of thing, and and that's almost like the most fun part of watching the Olympics. A lot of times, it's the story. Yeah, yeah, you get that insight into like you know who this person is and and all this stuff. Um, so as you're progressing, you know, through high school and mm-hmm. stuff, um, when did there start to become some sort of recognition in terms of maybe like a scholarship or something like that? It was pro- it was my junior my my junior year. The first year I started throwing shot. Um, this is where luck kind of plays into this. Uh, Don Babbitt had just gotten the job at the University of Georgia, and this is in 2016 or 19, 
1996. Oof. Whoa. I know. I don't know why, why I went there. <laughs> yeah, you just but, uh, you just confused me. You just took us uh, through like a time machine. And yeah, went back he to- was a time machine uh, situation, but he just got the job <laughs> at Georgia, and uh, Georgia was like, hey, we're going to give you a bunch of money to get uh, shot putters. So, and I was on that short list. I was, you know, the number one shot putter in the state of Georgia. So he instantly recruited me, you know, over the, while I'm watching the Olympic games, he, I'm getting phone calls from Georgia and they're like, Hey, we would love for you to come to our school. How long were you throwing for? One year. Just one year. One year. And, uh, and, and as a football player, um, as a football player in terms of like, uh, how good some other guys weren't were um, advancing maybe to like the division one level and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you feel like you weren't that kind of material? Um, yeah. In terms of football, you know, the state of Georgia, we play really, really good football. Yeah. So you learn real quick what a division one talented athlete looks like. I played against some of them. They move and are incredibly powerful. And I'm like, I can't move like that guy. And I'm not as tall as this person. Right. And um, when you're going through that process, you're like, look, you're, you're not really tall enough to play the position you're in. Like if you were a, like, if I was a fullback, I would be easier for me to go to college than being a defense and offensive lineman at six feet. <clears throat> so I could have played at a smaller D2 university. Right. Perfect size for that. But, you know, I, you know, I have big dreams. I want to go to a major Division I school. And when I was going through the process, a lot of Division I schools, you know, the Clemson, Liberty, Florida State, Georgia, they were all like, hey, we think you could be great. You know, you, for every one of those stories, it's the, you know, UCLA's, the Kansas's are like, you're not, you're too small to throw the 16-pound ball. You're never going to make it go anywhere. Mm. No one at six feet's ever gone, thrown really, really far. And... Really, the only schools to even offer a full scholarship would be like Clemson, Liberty, and Georgia. Those are kind of like my three schools that were, hey, we're going to give you as much money as it takes to come here. And then everyone else is like, you're not good enough, so we'll give you like 50%. I really love that about sports. I, I, I think that a lot of times, I think there's like people kind of have this perception that people are saying they're not smart enough or not good enough, but you, mm-hmm. usually no one's actually saying it to you. Like, hey, you're too stupid. You'll never be able to write a book or whatever. Like, no one's actually going to say that to your face, right? Yeah. But when it comes to sports, they tell you flat out. Mm-hmm. Like, dude, you're not good enough. And you're like, no, but I, and they're like, no, you're too short. You're too fat. You're too slow. You're yeah. too, th-. And you're like, Jesus, all right. You're just unloading everything on me. But I really love that about sports. And I think it's a healthy process to go through. You're like, okay, well, I can't be like some of these people over here. I can't really figure that out. Yeah. Let me try this one over here. Ah, oh, okay. That one didn't work so great either. I wonder how this would work. Yeah. And you find something and you're able to navigate it. Who turned you on to throwing a shot put? Um, his name was uh, David Makovic at uh, Lakeside High School. He's not there now. He's at a place called Tequila High School. Uh, <clears throat> he is probably, I guess for, for Georgia Athletics, he's the most passionate throws coach you will ever find. Oh, cool. Um, with his bad knees and all. And, uh, he's got the Southern accent and everything going. Well, he's got a little bit of the Southern accent, but <laughs> he's just, he, he just loves throwing. And I just got really lucky that he was there. And I wished in the funny story, like when I first met him, he didn't want to work with me. This is in middle school. I'm, I'm throwing the shot and, uh, the, one of the off days from baseball, I'm doing track and field. So I go up to the high school coach, uh, coach Mikovic, And I'm like, Hey, I'm a shot putter from middle school. I'm in eighth grade. Can you, can you help me become a better thrower? And he takes a look at me, and I guess I'm not that impressive looking. And he's like, 
no, I'm not going to help you. You're not good enough to be a shot putter. And I'm like, okay. And, you know, I go and do my, you know, really horrible technique of throws. And then you go fast forward two years later, because I played two years of uh, high school baseball. And I, he's like, hey, why don't you try throwing? I'm like, sure. And he's like, well, you're not good enough to actually throw with us yet. You have to, uh, we went to a, a long jump pit. And he said, once you can throw over the long jump pit, you will be good enough for our time for me to work with you. Which is probably like, what, 12 feet or something like that? Or... Um, I, I think it was, uh, I don't know, 30 feet. I yeah, don't know. Okay. It, was, it was a long one. Yeah. So eventually, you know, I spent all this time by myself in the corner of our track, throwing, trying to get over this long jump pit. And I like did it a couple of times. I called him over and I do it. He's like, okay, you can start throwing with us now. And then it was like, I went from throwing 30 or 35 feet in a very short period of time, I went like 46 and then I broke 50 feet within two weeks. Wow. And he's just like, Oh yeah, you, you're pretty talented. Maybe you could be good. And he just, and he, and then, uh, I think we went to a track meet where I got, you know, six. He's like, I think you should probably learn how to spin. I'm like, okay. And we tried to learn the spin. I'd never, I didn't even compete in the spin until the state championship. So two months later, after working diligently on trying to learn the spin, He's like, okay, now we think you could throw with the spin in actual competition. And went there, and one state was the number one shot putter in the state of Georgia. And kind of the rest is history. And then after that, I uh, going into my senior year, I was just like, okay, let's see what happens. I went to national meets, finished second in the country indoors, and um, one of the you know one of the top ten. There were a couple people, and this is what's great. You know, all the people that were above me when we get to college, now I'm better than all of them, which was awesome. Um, and then, you know, then Coach uh, Don Babbitt comes into my life and is like, yeah, we're going to offer you a full scholarship to come to Georgia, which wow. my parents were just like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Because that was like when I when I started kind of getting things going in middle school, when I told them, hey, I want to go to college, the second thing, the first thing they said was, we can't pay for you to go to college. You have to figure out a way to go there yourself. Hmm. We, we just, we don't have that kind of money. We'll try to support you in any way we can, but we can't pay for you to go to college. You got to find your way there. So they put it out there. I knew exactly what the expectation was. So when I got a full scholarship to go to Georgia, they're just like, awesome. Thank you. And, you know, the, the, it's funny, like the tears I saw in my mom's eyes when she's dropping me off at the University of Georgia are absolutely priceless. Because at that moment, I'm like, they, 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 hopefully this, this big sense of accomplishment has finally been hit, hits them. Yeah. They spent all this time raising you, put a yeah. lot of time, effort, money, everything into it. And, uh. And it results in something that they probably, they probably never even thought of. I don't think they, uh, I, yeah, maybe they, I mean, they knew I was a hard worker, Yeah, but to actually see it happen, mm. um, I know they're just like, we, we, we did it. I think, and, and I think every parent, if you don't, if I think if every parent out there is like that sends their kid to college, doesn't take a moment and say, we did it. We did our job. <laughs> then, uh, you're missing a moment. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's true as well. I think it, it's a, you know, it's an amazing thing to be able to get any of it right. You know, yeah. being a parent, like this whole thing is very, is very complicated, but there's nothing more beautiful that can happen than when your child finds something that they like. like oh yeah. Like you, you don't like shot, but you love it. Yeah. Uh, so it's, so it's even different, you know, but man. I find something that my kids like, and I'd love to celebrate it. You know, my, yeah. my daughter likes to draw stuff and, 
the two two drawings that kind of stood out to me. I made T-shirts out of them, and I wear them sometime. Oh, and, cool. And then I made sizes for her and my wife and stuff like that. And um, we all have fun with it because I want to. I think that's like a win. Like, hey, we found something that you love. Like, and who knows? Who knows what it turns into? Whether she is passionate about art, I don't care. I just, yeah, I'm just excited that she found something that she she really enjoys. What was it What was it like for you? Um, when you were in high school, you're trying football and you, you're trying some other things. And then I know it took a, took time for this thing to like click. Yeah. But when this thing clicked and then people were starting to write, you know, newspaper articles about you and stuff, what did that feel like? Um, it was pretty awesome. Um, I think it was, for me, it was really awesome to share it with my, my parents, um, to go to like the Rotary clubs and, you know, they, when you do good at stuff, they make, they, you go to award banquets yeah. and all of this kind of stuff. I'd imagine even in town, people would be like, hey, kid, I saw you in the newspaper. Good it, job, ex- right? Exactly. And that's, that's amazing. That's huge. I, I remember when I made the newspaper winning my first state championship, um, I still have the article. I, I, I'm a hoarder, so I have every single article. Of course. Stuff like that's <laughs> of information. Stuff like that's great. Uh, throughout my, you know, most of my career. That was unbelievable. Like I kept reading it. Like I can't believe they're writing a story about me, <laughs> and it's only about me and what I did. And you know, I, I did football, and you know, you got to share it with football. It's like you know, yeah, right. you'll get a blurb. Like I was a lineman, so it's like, well, Reese had he was the uh, defensive player of the week, and he had five tackles. But the quarterback had you know, <laughs> and then the quarterback and running back did all this, right? That that kind of stuff. So it was kind of interesting to be able to look at a newspaper article and it's just about me and my accomplishments and being able to share it with not only my parents, but the throws coaches. Um, I'm by far one of the best throwers that ever come out of our school. Mm. So to be able to put their name out there and say, Hey, these are some really good coaches like David McCovic, coach Gaddy. Um, those guys, they loved it too. They, they actually put me on a plane to go to my first national meet. I've never been on a plane before. Didn't even know what to expect. I'm sitting there. I'm like, so, they paid for it. They paid for it. So wow, I'm, that's I'm, huge. I'm, I'm sitting in this plane. I'm just like buckled in. It's like, okay, what's about to happen? Like, okay, just relax. And this and this big heavy machine that weighs many tons is going to fly in the air and it's going to stay there for the uh, three hours as we go to Boston. It doesn't even have a propeller. It doesn't have a propeller. It's just this big jet. <laughs> this is not going to work. <laughs> Everyone, please get off the plane now. Yeah, it's like everything gets really loud and the sensation of being, you know, propelled back in my seat. And then we're in this weightless world. And then we land and, you know, we're coming from Georgia and Boston. And now it's freezing cold and it's snowing and we don't know where to go. That, that was by far the, that was what really opened my eyes. We get on the subway, we're sitting in our seat and the guy next to me says he's going to kill my coach. And I'm just like, what? Like I never, I never even had that. I never had that kind of experience in Georgia, but this crazy guy on the subway is like, you see that guy over there? I'm going to kill him. I'm like, don't no, no, What? <laughs> You're just like, so, you know, I'm like, coach, we got to get off this bus. We got to get off this thing really fast. <clears throat> we get on me and we go up and we're trying to find a hotel and, a, and you know, we're not used to snow in Georgia. We have like one inch and it's like the apocalypse. <laughs> um, so we're walking around in the snow and we're like, where are we supposed to go? It's supposed to be here. And it's like just a regular building. We walk five blocks in a circle and then we finally find it kind of experience. It's just like, this is so awesome. We went to, you know, went to university of Harvard and ate food down there. I never, 
I'd never been on a college campus before. And just just getting those, like, these are the kinds of the experiences I got because I got to throw. And I got to experience it with two people that got that shaped my life and gave me the future I have today. That's that's amazing. Yeah. I'm trying to think, uh, you know, Georgia Bulldogs. I'm trying to think about, like, mm, what uh, who they had there football-wise. Was Garrison Hurst there? Oh, yeah. Garrison Hurst was there. Garrison Hurst is a badass. Oh, he was. So... My, My I, I, you know, being a person that does weight training stuff, we had a place called Powerhouse Gym, and Garrison Hurst, you know, right after his uh, senior season, and he lived, um, was it like thirty minutes up the road? Mm. He came to our gym and worked out. I've never been so, I've never been that close to greatness in my entire life. Yeah. Like he glow, like he walked in and he's glowing. It was unbelievable. Like he's like he had his little entourage of people. You're like, around why him. are you glowing, dude? What are you doing? This is unbelievable. Like his his skin was so shiny. I wanted to touch him, uh, and like, but you know, you you don't want to do that and and whatever. But he he was un. Yeah. What if he punched you? Well, he hopefully if even if he punched me, it's it's kind of like I'm I'm a wrestling fan. Um, and Ric Flair's uh, stepdaughter goes to University of Georgia. Oh wow. Um, I I wanted him, and maybe he'll do it. I want him to. To slap me. To give you a chop. I wanted to give me the <laughs> chop. I, I, I've been watching that for years. And, you know, my, my brother-in-law is a big wrestling fan, too. Mm-hmm. I think they would. And he, you know, since he's at Georgia, is killing him. Just to have him do that. And I, and I know he's older. You look at him. But right. he still has the fire. I know he's got one left in him. Oh, yeah. He's got a, he's got a few. Yeah. I've, you know, I grew it just, up. I just go bare-chested, backhand, right there. Love red marks. I can get the pictures. Wrestling was, you know, <laughs> wrestling was huge uh, in that area, you know? Um, oh, yeah. The uh, the old days of the, like, AWA and, like, mm-hmm. you know, even, like, um, even, like, through the through the 80s. Oh, absolutely. You know, it was, it was enormous. And Ric Flair, um, <clears throat> Ric Flair got in, like, a fight almost every night uh, outside of wrestling because <laughs> mm-hmm. he was such a heel and he was so hated. People would, like, throw shit at his car and, like. People would always take it too far, and then he'd end up like in a scuffle with somebody. Well, um, Pretty wild. The Steiner brothers, uh, I think it's Rick. His son goes to Kennesaw State University, mm-hmm. and we went up there and uh, we we do the forge, and we're up there demoing it for him. And his son is probably the he's got all the records there, but they have a wrestling belt, and I have a picture of me. <laughs> like you know, for me, it's like yeah. if he would have said, "Oh, it was Hulk Hogan." I'm like, okay, that's great. Right. I'm like Sting, Steiner Brothers. <laughs> um, that WCW background. Huh? I, I, that's because it was on TBS, and I think the other ones were on cable. We right. had the regular one. So those are the wrestlers that I watched growing up. And believe me, my younger brother has had the uh, the stinger on him a bunch of times. And, uh, <laughs> Those moves all hurt, man. They're they no do. Joke. Like it's so you think it's <laughs> fake. So this is that's that's the problem with them saying it's fake is because I could do it on my little brother and it would hurt him. Yeah, and it's like this. I is, put an arm it bar on feel him. Feel fake. Yeah, I could put an arm bar on him, and you know what? It hurt. Oh yeah, twist his arm around like oh, it, it, this, this really works. The Boston <laughs> Crab, the oh, Camel my, Clutch. Oh my gosh, they're all they're all brutal. Jake the Snake. Do you guys remember this play? I remember hearing oh, it yeah, on the D&D. radio. Was, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, against the Jets in yeah. overtime. Yep. Yeah. I was, yeah, I was I'm camping. unfortunately a Jets fan, and this is, goddamn, Garrison Hurst goes 98 yards right here. He's fast, fast man. He was, he was incredible in uh, college. I remember watching him. <laughs> oh, come on. That's an illegal <laughs> stiff that. arm. Look you're at Tio. Look at Tio. You're not catching that guy. Get out of here. 
Wow. So I remember I heard this on the radio, and I just be like, ah, like, damn it, it's over. And then it's like, wait, he broke a tackle. He's still going. Yeah. No, this ain't going to happen. And all of a sudden, we're just going nuts. It was so sick. Look at Bill oh, Parcells. like, oh, <laughs> man. Yeah. What an insane, yeah, that was an insane play. Georgia, you know, they're not, uh, they're not short of having great running backs. I mean. Oh, yeah. One of the greatest of all time went there, Herschel Walker. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's Herschel Walker stuff everywhere over there. There is. Uh, Herschel Walker, I mean, I feel like anything he touches turns to gold. (laughs) So. Talk about freak athletes. That, that might be one of the freakiest athletes to ever walk the face of the earth. He pretty much is. I, I, I'll give him. Well, I mean, what about Bo Jackson? Yeah, Bo Jackson, you got to give Bo's really, I mean, two sports. Yeah. We got, look, we have the Bo Jackson rookie card right here. Bam. I had his uh, score football baseball card. Oh, yeah. I had that one. That was, that was, that's, that's a rarity. You don't have very many of those. I, I think I still have. Yeah. It. I mean, Bo Jackson did prove it because he was in, he was in two different sports, but you got to remember too, you know, Herschel Walker was on like the bobsled team, right? Yes. And then uh, later on in life, when he was like 50, he's like, oh, the MMA seems cool. I'm going to mm-hmm. try that. And he fought a bunch, you know? You talk about a individual that's in incredible shape. Yeah. That's Herschel Walker. Jacked and tan for life, I guess. Jacked and tan for <laughs> life. Absolute life. And another, he's like one of those guys, you're around him, he glows. Mm-hmm. He's just like, this guy is unbelievable. And it's, I, I try and I like, I know I've had that experience with people where they come up to you and they put you on this pedestal and they think you're some kind of godlike figure. And I try to, you know, control that. But when you're around people like that, it's just like you, you start shaking. Like, it's <laughs> you can't, you can't contain it. You're like, oh man. Yeah. You just, it just, you turn into a bub- bumbling idiot. Mm-hmm. You do. Absolutely. And I try not to be that big of an idiot and just be quiet, but I'm just like that guy snickering in the corner. Herschel Walker was crazy though. Cause he would do like kickoff returns and stuff too. I mean, and he was huge. He was a monster. I he, mean, who's that big doing kickoff returns? That just shows you how much of a, just, he's an alien. <laughs> he was, uh, sent down to earth. He didn't know he was an alien, but he's an alien. Cause he, he is not clearly he is super strong and he is sprinter fat. Like he was a sprinter. Like he's probably the first high uh, collegiate athlete to have thousands of people watch him run a race. He, he's unbelievable. Wow. I, We're watching some footage of him just yeah. running people over like crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I don't know, man, there's, there, there's something so fascinating about, uh, genetics and, uh, where some of these mutants come from. Yeah. I remember, um, you know, watching a lot of, uh, Barry Sanders, when Barry Sanders was playing and oh yeah um i always thought like this guy i don't know what it is about him but like they should they should study him so like what how does he able to move like that how is he able to stop and change direction um and look make it look like one single motion that, how's that, it possible that's a that's a very good question <laughs> um i wish i could move like barry sanders like not even like think of it, this was crazy his son can't move like him no. Like you, you're raised in that household and you, you can't do what he does. I always found it interesting watching him run, how much his shoulders would move. You know, his shoulder pads would, oh would, <laughs> they move, they move all over the place. Yeah. Like, like, um, there's something like magical about watching him run. Yeah. But he looks like he's running really hard where there's some guys who are like uh, a little bit more graceful when they run and they got longer yeah. str- I mean, he was short and maybe that's part of it. This yeah. one is, or the one where he gets twisted up and flips around is like the, 
Is that like the a, Chicago Bears one? Yeah, or there's, the Dallas there's, Cowboys? There's, there's a good one against the Bears and the Cowboys, which yeah. is probably coming up here in a minute. But <laughs> I, I love I love this kind of stuff. Did you end up going to a lot of football games when you're at the University of Georgia? I mean, that's a that's a uh, big thing, right? I tried to go to as many as I possibly could. Um, they get like as a one of the perks of being an athlete mm-hmm. at some of these universities is you they give you free tickets. Right. And, you know, I'm from Kentucky, so anytime, like, Georgia's playing Kentucky in basketball or something like that, or, you know, watching Florida games and stuff, I'm definitely gun-ho for that. I remember I was uh, always so frustrated. I mean, I, I love watching Emmett Smith in the day, too, but they oh. were always talking about who's better, and I'm like, come on, man. Barry. Barry Sanders is, is not only is he better, but he's so much more fun to watch. <laughs> what about uh, Jim Brown? That guy. Oh he, yeah, he, he was he was for his time. Oh my God, great Gail Sayers, great. Mm-hmm. I love watching those guys play. You know, it's interesting. We were talking about pro wrestling earlier, and you would think, you know, you don't. I guess you don't really think about the prowess of some of these pro wrestlers, how um, how athletic they are. Oh yeah, you don't really understand it, you know, fully, but. Um, you know, I did pro wrestling for five years, and when I was at uh, when I was in Louisville, Kentucky, the WWE training ground, yeah, I saw some crazy shit from some of these athletes, and I was like, it, it made me realize I was like, okay, I, I'm I'm not only am I not anything like them, I can't even figure it out how yeah. to be on that level, you know. So I'm like, I'm gonna have to figure out a a different wrestling strategy or something because I I'm not like these other guys. I mean, there's guys doing. <clears throat> I remember Shelton Benjamin. Um, who was an all-American collegiate wrestler? Yeah, hopped up on the top rope. You know, Undertaker does that thing where he walks on the ropes. Yes. Um, Shelton Benjamin and the Undertaker does it, and he's holding someone's hand, and he comes down and he whacks you on the head. Right. Yeah. Shelton Benjamin did it by himself, no one holding his hand. He ran around all all four corners, and we got to the fourth corner. He did a backflip, landed on his feet, and I was like, I'll never be. Able- <laughs> i'll never be able to do that whatever that was yeah whatever that was i don't have that and there he was all shredded and everything and there's there was other great talent there too like uh we had uh bobby lashley was there and you know i i i uh me and my brothers actually got john cena into wrestling and no way yeah yeah john cena uh he used to work so we had a we had a friend we we worked at a place called mass movement where we all moved fitness equipment yeah probably the worst job ever you know, trying to move a uh, thousand pound, uh, you know, calf raise machine or something up a flight of stairs. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Cra- craziest, craziest thing you'll ever try to figure out in your life. It yeah. Was, it was wacky. Um, but that's the job that me and my brother had. And one of the girls that worked there, she was like the warehouse uh, manager. She yeah. kept telling us about her friend. She's like, oh my God, like, I can't wait for you to meet my friend, John. He's going to love you guys. He's into lifting and he's into wrestling and all this stuff. And um, so we were like, oh, okay, whatever. And she kept telling telling us how jacked he was. And yeah. you, know, you hear people say it all the time. They're like, oh, the guy's really big. And then you meet him and you're like some little squirt. He's not big at all, right? Yeah. Well, then she showed me a picture of uh, John Cena on the beach. And it's he's like 18 or something. And he's doing like a double bicep pose. And I'm like. I'm like, how old do you say this guy is? And she's like, and I was like 20 or something at the time. Or she's like, well, he's, you know, he just, he's probably like 18 or 19 in this picture. And I'm like, he looks like a professional bodybuilder. I'm like, that's insane. Like he's, yeah, he's just that jacked. She's, she's like, yeah, he, he trained, you know, she's like, I've been telling you about him forever. 
So fast forward a few months and John came out and he wanted to, um, he wanted to pursue some bodybuilding. And my, this is when I lived in Los Angeles and, uh, you know, John trains at Gold's Gym in Venice and he wants yeah. to pick up a job because he's there for the entire summer. So he's like, I need to make some money while I'm out here. I don't want to be a bum and just bum off my friends while I'm here. Yeah. So he picks up a job at this place where we're moving fitness equipment. That's where we end up meeting him. Get to know him a little bit better and uh, get to, you know, see how he trains and all. I mean, he trains like a lunatic, mm-hmm. extremely strong. And um, he he starts talking about how he wants to do like a bodybuilding show. He signs up for this bodybuilding show, does tremendous. He looks amazing. He's completely shredded. Yeah. Yeah. He's that's, that was the bodybuilding show that he yeah. did. He wow. looks, he looks freaky, right? Yeah. And then this opportunity came along for him to do, I believe the show was called battle dome, which battle. Okay. Yeah. Battle dome was kind of like American gladiators. Yeah. And my oldest brother actually ended up being, uh, uh, one of John's first uh, pro wrestling coaches, my oldest brother, uh, somebody hit John up and said, Hey, you know, th- you would be great for this battle dome thing. And uh, he was like, Oh my God, this is great. They threw six figures at him. He's like, this is life changing. You know, this yeah. is, this is uh, huge. And so my oldest brother, my oldest brother knows, you know, a shyster when he sees one, you know? So my oldest brother's like, dude, he's like, let me, he goes, just don't sign. Let me look at, can I look at the contract? He's like, I, I've been around these people before. My brother kind of looks it over and stuff. And he's like, man, he's like, this is really one-sided. This is all for them. You yeah. have the potential to make six figures. But, you know, he's like, who, who the hell knows what's really going to happen? Yeah. My brother said, dude, why don't you come down and, and wrestle? And my said, me and my brothers are already in this wrestling league yeah. called Ultimate Pro Wrestling. He said, wrestling will be around forever. This shit, this battle dome thing. Yeah. He's like, it'd be on air for a couple of years and it'll probably go. So yeah. What are you going to be this battle dome guy the rest of your life or whatever? And, uh, John kind of agreed and he thought, okay, well, yeah, let me try wrestling. And so, uh, he came down, he started wrestling. He got a contract within about probably six or eight months or so. Wow. And, uh, he was, you know, it took him a long time. He was, but, uh, yeah, he went to, uh, Louisville, Kentucky after that and spent five or six years. there, really kind of like honing in wow. the craft, okay. you know, at his time when he came in, they weren't going to let some bot Jack bodybuilder guy come in and, and start to, uh, run there. He is and start <laughs> to really run shit because, yeah. um, they've done that before with guys that had a body. Yeah. And it, it just was, it it just worked out shitty where they weren't good wrestlers. They weren't good on the mic. And so they really, they really, he, he really took his time developing a character and how he spoke, you know, on camera. And he just took, they took a lot of time with his uh, wrestling skill and everything. And yeah. And so, yeah, you know, it's, um, but he, but he's a mutant of an athlete too. I mean, John can squat. Um, I think his best squat is like mid, mid sixes. You yeah. Know, he benches, he's benched, uh, nearly 500 pounds. Um, I I've been friends with him for 20 plus years. Um, and he's just, he's just mutated. Uh, he has drug test after drug test after drug test posted in his gym. Yeah. He, he actually does get drug and no one ever believes him. But if you ever, you ever get a chance to meet the guy and you look at his structure, you look at his, his wrist is the size of your fist. Oh, wow. It's weird, man. It's weird. He just, wow. some people, there's just, people are just different, man. There he is wearing the strong sleeves, banging out a 6'11 squat. He actually, he, it's like, 
I don't know if anybody ever notices this, but when you see him on TV and stuff, you can you can see some weird stuff with him. His hands are just gigantic. Yeah. He's got these <laughs> massive hands. There's like threads and posts all over the place about John Cena's hands. It's a kind of a funny thing, but his hand is like you're wearing one of those foam <laughs> one of those foam hands. He's got this, yeah. this massive uh you know, some people just have a have a structure. Um, I'm sure in your time, you must have been accused of doing stuff because a lot of people think that uh, explosive athletes, it's almost like you can't, you can't meddle in Olympics without being on some stuff, right? Well, uh, this is how I attempted to handle it. No, I, I don't do it, but I don't go out of my way to say that I don't to certain right. people. I want to, hey, if you, right. if you think I am, yeah, oh, of course, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yep, uh, yep. And like, what are you on? Like, um, well, name some stuff. Like, yep, that's a, yeah, that's it. Like, I. You're like, I only do it Monday through Friday. Monday through Friday. It's not a big stop anytime I want. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the approach that I want people to think that what I do can't be done naturally. Yeah, But it can, not... but the thing is, you can't. Like, right. uh, the way I look at it, if you looked at all my lifting numbers and everything that I've done, there's nothing that's just going to jump off the paper like, wow, that's unbelievable. You know, 500 pound bench, that's pretty, I mean, most strong people can hit that. Mm -hmm. 600 pound squat, pretty much anybody can hit that. So I don't think, uh, if you think that I got to 600 pounds because I was using something out of a <laughs> bottle, then fine. Believe that if that right. makes you, if that helps you sleep better, <laughs> it makes you think that that's what you got to do, then go do that. But if it's just, it's just consistency over time. You yeah, were watching a video of me squatting 600 for the first time. Look at those glutes. Yeah. Look, uh, the, the most important thing is Corey who stands behind me is like, I hope he gets this because there is no way I'm saving him. Is Co was Corey just praying? <laughs> he he just, like. he just prayed that I would get it. Oh. Um, now he didn't, he, he doesn't tell you this early on. I'm thinking, honestly, I think he's right behind me. I didn't know he was that far behind me, like standing as far away from me as possible. He's not for... really supportive at all. No, he not, might as well not have even been in the room. He might as well not even be spotting me. Cause there's no, like he did look, he's not even bending his I mean, knees. He's he, just, he's in jeans. He's <laughs> not ready to go at all. This is a great video on poor <laughs> spotting skills right here. So what I got at the end of that was, um, a back slap saying, okay, you, you made it. That was uh, what six plates for a W dub? Yeah, just for a double. This is the like um, the, the six hundred. This is the first time I ever done six hundred. Just squatting, just for it's for nice. it's more for fun. Like Corey's yeah. like, hey, why don't you do six hundred? I'm like, yeah, why don't I do six hundred? Yeah, I mean, they, this weight that you're doing right here moves great. I mean, it looks like looks I feel really like there's a lot more in the tank, and I believe the the philosophy that Corey has is he never wants me to do anything that I can't do. So uh, there's never been a lift that I've done that I've ever missed when Corey's there. I, I everything I've gotten. So it makes you believe there's nothing I can't lift. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's crucial, uh, to know, to know the athlete that you're with, because there might be some other people where you want them to kind of miss. Yeah. Maybe, maybe because when you tell them to do some of the assistance work and you tell them to do other things, maybe they're not getting some of that done. Yeah. And so it's like, you know what? It'd be good for this asshole to miss every once in a while. Then I can kind of say look okay you know you you're on track you should have made the lift yeah but you're not doing your accessory work mm -hmm. we've talked about you know yeah i'm sure Corey's over there you know he's like mm -hmm. nodding his head he's had that have this conversation a million <laughs> times with a million people at your gym i'm sure yeah that's the the beauty of having now i, I the thing is i probably could have found some trainer 
that has some crazy system for lifting and maybe I, had better spotting bit skills. better spot, <laughs> spotting skills but there's something to be said about just a person that is young and eager to get into lifting and brings fresh ideas i i could go to somebody that's much older and wiser and they're just going to tell me what they do instead of going to someone that you know Corey was just kind of getting into the strength game a little bit so to go to him he's going to he's going to have all these really unique ideas on how to build strength like i didn't want to go to a throw a, a lifting coach that was already coached a bunch of people in, in, in throws. Corey's never coached a thrower. There's something uh, <laughs> something real magical about having someone that's a clean slate. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're open to a lot of new ideas. That happens here uh, at this facility all the time, uh, both with our lifters and our employees. Um, you know, what can I share with somebody um, about a particular job when they've never done the job before? Yeah. Uh, I can share all kinds of stuff. I can share my interpretation of what it should look like. I can share all the different, uh, all the different kind of mottos and mantras that we kind of hang on to here. Mm -hmm. I can say, this is, this is what the company does. This is how it works. And they're not going to have a lot of, a lot of input or interaction in the beginning because they're just going to kind of be doing, they're going to learn, they're going to kind of learn the ropes. Right. But once yeah. we get into it, they're so excited about it and they were, they'll come to me and they'll say, you know what? I've been thinking about this and I'll be like, shit, man, that's great. Well, now yeah. it's to the point where I always tell them, oh, well, you know, your job a lot better than I do. You know what, you know, what do you think? And they'll come to me with uh, new ideas and stuff. And so it works out great and oh, they, yeah. they bring a lot of energy to it. And that's kind of what you're saying about Corey, huh? Corey brings tons of energy and I think he, he challenges me in ways that, you know, a, 50 year old rose coach couldn't like uh i mean i've challenged me and Corey have done a bench squat uh challenge where whatever i bench Corey has to squat and <laughs> it almost killed him one time but <laughs> you know he so like i think i did you know 560 somewhere no 500 was it five okay 500 in the bench and Corey had to squat it and Corey's i don't think he's ever squatted that much or was four, no it was 485 um he went home ate you know five <laughs> you know, 24 inch stakes, bolt up, went in and it almost got him. But got, by golly, he went out there and did it. Just stuff like that. It's right. just, it's good to have somebody that can challenge you and just come up with different ways to keep your mind engaged in working out because lifting weights can be somewhat monotonous. Yo. So if yeah. you can have somebody that can come in there, like I, we, we did a challenge where he's like, Reese, I don't think you can do 315, 25 times. I'm like, yeah, sure I can. So, I mean, I got, I did 24, so technically he's right, but, right. um, it's just good to have somebody that's going to make it fun to work out. And when you come in, you're excited about doing stuff. Yeah. We're looking at a video where we had a bunch of high school punks come in and say, Reese, we can do more 225 as three, three lifters, by the way, than uh, you can do mm. in a single. So they did 38 and I did 38. Awesome. It made me think that maybe I could do the combine. If I can get 38 <laughs> out there, that's pretty, they're, they're like, this guy is amazing. He should play football. That's yeah. pretty, yeah, it's pretty legit. Yeah. When you were uh, throwing on your, on your way to the Olympics and stuff, how, um, how much did you implement the big three as far as squat, bench, and dead in your training, your uh, um, training and stuff? Well, I always benched and squat, mm -hmm. um, deadlift. Um, I was not the best deadlifter. Now 
we we you know we we have kids that come in and challenge me and mm-hmm. say, "Hey, I can deadlift more than you." And just being a bigger human being, I can somewhat naturally come in and crush them. So mm-hmm. that's what I'll do. I'll just play around. Like I just play around with deadlift. I don't I don't take it as seriously as I probably should. Yeah. Where do you think you get your confidence from? Because like I know early on in the uh, conversation we had before we even came on uh, on the air. Yeah. You were just like. You know, they said I couldn't do it, so I'm going to prove everyone wrong type of a mentality. Like, where do you think that, like, uh, just the fact that you knew you were going to overcome pretty much any obstacle that faced you? I don't know 100% where that confidence comes from. Mm-hmm. It's just just something inside of me. Um, and maybe it's just through life. I've always, everything I've tried, I've always been successful with. Um I mean, I've tried out for many teams. I think there's only one basketball team in middle school that I did not make. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That was that was my only failure there. So when that happens, you just get this, you get confident that it doesn't matter what they throw at me. Like I'd never played organized baseball, but made every single baseball team that I attempted to try out for. Just on sheer athletic ability. And I was a horrible hitter. Maybe it was because I was a catcher and they just not enough catchers <laughs> out there. But I made every single baseball team I ever played on and contributed on all those teams. Like uh, when I played football, now being a, you know, a male in the state of Georgia, I am pretty much exposed to football from birth. And ever since I was a young boy, I always wanted to play football. So when I tried out for the baseball team and I'm, you know, the seventh and eighth graders are playing against each other, I'm the starting defensive tackle. And I'd never played, like, I didn't play PB League baseball or play PB League football. I just went out there and I just out-athletic the next defensive tackle, and it was a starter. And, you know, it's just always the way it's been. Like, when I, when I played football in middle school, I never came off the field. I was on every single team. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, even at the, uh, at the biggest stages, I mean, you're yeah. talking about Beijing and stuff, and you just had that same confidence roll straight into there? No, um, not all the time. Yeah. Um, my first Olympic Games, I did horrible uh, because I was not prepared to have the eye of the world on me. Mm. I just mentally could not handle people now paying attention to me. Like I did so many interviews talking about myself and um, luckily by then that my, the, the stories were not dominated by me being adopted. They were just normal. Like who is this rando kid that made this Olympic team that he probably shouldn't have made. And they just try to make, you know, just micro stories out of it. And I just wasn't used to doing that. And, um, getting drug tested all the time, and then all of a sudden going to an Olympic Games, and every, I'd say half the field are people that I've watched um, at the time, like on YouTube and videos. Oh, there's there's Adam Nelson, there's John Godina, there's you know this Ukrainian shot putter. I'm like, I see all of these people that I'm like, man, it'd be really cool to meet them, and then all of a sudden now I'm throwing against them, and it just it blew my mind. I remember uh, uh, Lars Riedel, who's a he's the German discus champion. I slapped him. I was, uh, the, the <laughs> you know, he's six foot 10 and you know, you don't really realize you, maybe I thought the Germans were going to beat me up, but you know, um, the, the, uh, bus we were on kind of jostled and I, my hand and I just opened hand slapped him across the face and he just kind of looked at me a little bit like, and, and I'm just like on my knees, like, please, sir, kind sir. I am, I am a young thrower. I have my whole life in front of me. Please do not kill me. <laughs> and he kind of laughed it off a little bit. 
But, you know, you're in that situation. This is like Lars Riedel. Like, I watched that guy win the, the 1996 Olympic Games in the discus. He is one of the greatest discus throwers of all time. And I just open hand slapped this guy. <laughs> and I'm sh- it, you know, but, you know. He had it coming <laughs> to him, though. He didn't have it coming to him. I, <laughs> and, and the thing is, if he would have stood up and slapped me, you know, backhand me across the face and be like, you know what, I deserve it. <laughs> I, I I do not have, I, there, I'm not good enough to uh, be in his presence. Jeez. So that and that was kind of the problem. Like I'm, I'm around all these these superstars. They like seeing Kobe Bryant and all of these incredible professional athletes on Olympic teams. I was ill-equipped to handle that situation. So you know, by the time you get to Beijing, I'd had some success. I won two straight world championships. I thought I was going to go in there and roll over everybody as I've done in every single major up to that point. But I didn't do it, and that just I had to eat the biggest piece of humble pie. <laughs> That could ever be put in someone's face. <laughs> I call it a shit sandwich without the bread. It's yep, lo- uh, low, low carb, <laughs> very low carb. Yeah, <laughs> it's keto friendly. I think that's uh, yeah, it's brutal. You know, when you think you're gonna be able to come out on top and it doesn't ki- doesn't quite go your way. Yeah. When you when you eventually, uh, you know, you're a three time Olympian, and yeah. when you eventually uh, did medal, you did place. Um. Well, I, sometimes people aren't satisfied because they're like, well, they could have been second or they could have been first. Yeah. Uh, what did it feel like for you? Um, I was extremely excited to finally win an Olympic medal. Um, so when I, you know, I won the two previous so easily, it was easy. Like I just kind of, I felt like I just rolled in and won, but you know, there's other world championships and and stuff that, that lead up to the next opportunity to go to the Olympic games. Mm -hmm. By the time I got there, I just kind of understood the game a little bit more. You just, I wished it would have been first place. You know, I would have got the book deal, um, would have gotten to play the Augusta National, where I'm from in Augusta, and, you know, the, 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 the skies would have opened up and everything would have been great. But I think the place I got was just right. Um, being a bronze medalist, it, it's, it's perfect. Um, it kind of puts that cherry on top of my career because everyone, you talk to most anyone there, they're like, this guy's probably, the, he's like, that year, even though I got a bronze, I was still number one in the world. Mm-hmm. So everyone knew it's like, this is just one competition out of the right. 32 competitions he does a year. Okay, he didn't, he didn't win this one, but right after that, I won the next four. You know, right. I, just, I just look at it, it's like, well, it's just like any other competition. Um, I get a, a nice little medal in the only reason it's it's really that important is because somebody else is saying it's this is the most important meet and to me it's just every competition is important Mm. and every and if i lose any competition anywhere else in the world it shouldn't be that bad even though every four years you get a chance to be perfect on one day (laughs) right no big deal but i just looked at it as like hey um i did the best i could on that day um i look at each competition and like world championships and stuff like that did I PR for that particular situation? And I did. I went there. Um, I threw 60, 64 feet. My first Olympic Games, I threw 67 the second Olympic Games, and I threw 69 feet my third Olympic Games. So wow. every single time I get an opportunity to go to the Olympic Games, I throw really well. So if I would have made the 2016 Olympic Games, I, if I threw 70 feet, I'd be another bronze medalist. So, hey, there you go. Has the shot put advanced, you know, since the time that you got into it um, uh, to the, to its present time? Like, uh, do because you're mentioning that you threw quite a bit further. 
uh, were the other athletes progressing as well? Yeah, they, they were. Um, the, the person that won the, the uh, was it 2004 Olympic Games, that was Adam Nelson. He threw just under 70 feet to win his. Hmm. Uh, the 2008, um, a guy named Thomas Majewski threw just over 70 feet to win the Olympic Games. So for perspective, for that year, that was the worst competition I had all year long. Every, mm. Like, I won the Olympic trials at 72 feet 6 inches, but the yeah. winning distance was like 70 feet 5. So the next Olympic Games in 2012, I think Thomas threw a little bit better. He threw uh, 71 feet to win his second Olympic Games, and um, I just kept improving. So I would say it's getting better, but after that Olympics, he went down in the toilet. Like, he, he mm. never did anything ever again. He was pretty much off the, the the grid, and I would say now, like the 2016 Olympic Games with Krauser throwing seven, almost 73 feet, yeah, it's getting a lot harder. And I know, like uh, Tom Walsh, who was third at that one, who's won pretty much every world indoor and world outdoor after that after the Olympic Games. That guy is probably going to throw 74 feet at mm. the Olympic Games. Wow. So it's getting harder. And I think a big part of that is people are looking outside of the box when it comes to throwing. We're way smarter about training and we're more efficient at teaching the techniques to people at a younger age. So they get experience a lot sooner. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if either Tom Walsh or Ryan Krauser break the world record very soon because we're finally doing what Randy Barnes had to do out of a bottle essentially <laughs> to break the world record. Um, what, uh, What's the deal with this uh, throw uh, from a long time ago uh, by uh, a former uh, 49er? Um, I think it's Michael Carter. Yep, Michael Carter. It's like a high, he did it like in high school, but he threw some like ridiculous. I realized it's a smaller shot put. Yeah, but it's like something like 84 feet or something like that, right? Oh, oh, oh yeah, it's uh, 82 feet. Yeah, um, and no one is even close to that. Like no one's within like five feet or something, right? Yeah, or maybe even more. So the, I think the closest person that would have had a chance would have been Krauser. Krauser threw 77 feet indoors, mm. but ended up getting hurt a senior year in high school, which kept him from throwing <laughs> that distance. And, and, you know, I, I talked to him about that. I was like, you know, how in the world did you throw that far? He's just like, he got a uh, track and field news, and there was a throwing sequence in there. And every single day, he did every single frame of the throw that he saw in that track and field news. That's how he threw 82 feet. Now, if you, if you have an athlete that is willing to put that kind of dedication into a sport, maybe there's a chance. And you look at like, this guy's an Olympic, he's a Olympic silver medalist and he's a Super Bowl winning defensive lineman. This guy is an absolute mutant that, <laughs> that you, there aren't, they don't make people like this anymore. Yeah. There, there's no one that's going to do track and field and football at the same time. So he also did the throw without a spin. He did. He's a glider. And are there gliders that still, that like are in the Olympics? There are some gliders, but mm -hmm. us rotators are doing everything in our power to mm -hmm. vanquish them, to make sure that they feel inferior to what we do. <laughs> so, you know, like David Storrell, he was a three times uh, world champion. He would have been the, in Thomas Majewski. But see, the thing like with Thomas is, it was just, I feel like his Olympic gold medals were just more situational. Hmm. Like in that situation, he just threw far enough to win. Right. It wasn't that he went out there and threw 72 feet or threw this incredible distance. Those people don't really exist. Like uh, David Stroll, three-time uh, world champion, 
those years that he was a three-time world champion, he still wasn't number one in the world. It was either me or Christian or somebody else. Mm. So, like, yeah, okay, he he go there and he hit his one magic, and that's the thing. Like for him, that was that was his Olympics. That was that was his golden his golden ticket. For me, I just treat it just it's just another meet. I'm gonna I'm just trying to get my you know trying to make some money and try to do the best I can. That's right. my that was always my approach. Is I just want to make sure that anytime I competed, I'm at a certain level. And if it happens to be good enough to win, great. And that's how you can do this for 14 years. When you compete at a high level, there's, uh, you know, people are going to try all kinds of crazy things to, yep. to be the best in the world. Um, do you feel that the sport has uh, gotten better with that kind of stuff of, of you know, catching people that are <laughs> cheating or, or has it gotten worse? Or like, in your opinion, kind of? They, I, I think what's happening is maybe they're getting better at hiding it. Hmm. Um, or maybe we could be the more positive. We've eradicated drug use in track and field, <laughs> but anytime you put large sums of money on the line, yeah. people are going to try to get an edge to try to uh, get a piece of that pie. And for me, it's like, I'm going to take my lumps and if I hit it great and I'm, I'm throwing the best I've ever thrown, then I'm going to get my thing. And that's, that's, that's the way I like to approach it. I'm right. going to get whatever I get because of the hard work I put in. I don't want to cheat myself in thinking I have to cheat all the rest. Of the, because when you do that, you're cheating everyone in the competition. Like, yeah, I'm not really, I didn't want to put in that time. I just wanted to use a performance enhancer. Right. And that's why I did what I did. And, you know, like Adam Nelson, who he's the, he's now the 2004 Olympic gold medalist, but he was a silver medalist because uh, Yuri Belenog, who, beat him was on a performance enhancer and it took him four years because you know at the time they didn't have the technology to catch whatever he was on and then they you know then they figure out oh well hey this is the drug he was on they test it oh well he's gone and then you know by then he's already retired from the sport mm. and he gets absolutely no benefit like it would have changed his life forever if he was the olympic gold medalist in 2004 so he gets a gold medal what sent to him in the mail or something well they they think they they send a courier and they, I think they met him at the airport and they hand him the box and they're like, congratulations. And then he goes back home and he shows his wife and his kids. And it's like, I'm now a gold medalist now. <laughs> it, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of sad. And, you know, you, you know, I, I, I take my hat off to USA track and field in terms of, they try to make a few special moments for him, like announce him as the mm -hmm. Olympic gold medalist. But I guarantee you just talking to him, he would have much rather been able to benefit monetarily from that Olympic gold medal. It probably cost him a million dollars. Wow. Um, just in terms of endorsement deals, you know, upgrades from his Nike contract and all that kind of stuff. Instead of being a silver, because I think, you know, he's a victim of his own success. He'd won a bunch of silver medals up to that point. He'd never won a gold. And this would have been that opportunity of him winning a two. This is what would have happened. He would have been the Olympic gold medalist. And the next year he would have been the world outdoor gold medalist. Mm. He would have had two majors back to back to back. It would have definitely helped him out. Right. And, you know, there is a possibility. I mean, I'm not going to say this. I mean, I like Thomas and I like David. They're, they seem like they're pretty good people. But if they ended up testing positive, I'd be sad. But, you know, I, I take the Olympic gold medal. I feel bad for the guy that is the bronze medalist because um, he'll have to take that up with the guy that stole my bronze medal. So. <laughs> But you know, maybe I'll get a, a gold medal. In the, I don't. I mean, if I got a gold medal five years from now, I'd be like, I'll still be super excited. Yeah, and right. I'd Put it in a shadow box and 
and then I'll just upgrade my celebrity. <laughs> so, <laughs> how how did it feel to actually accomplish that and to represent the United States, to represent the Hoffa name you mentioned yeah. being so important? What was that? I mean, were you just bawling like a little baby, or or was some other emotions going on? Um, it was more, you know, I've been in the sport for a long time, so I had a little bit more uh, handle on my emotions. Um, when I won my first world championship, um, when we're on the bus to go and get that medal, I was crying like a baby because it's like, I did it. I finally, I'm a world, I finally did something great. Um, it was just the, a, a large, when I won the Olympic bronze, it was just this sense of accomplishment that I had figured out a way for like 10 years to compete and be successful and finally put it together in a meet like the Olympic games, which is they, I feel like the Olympic games, they do everything they possibly can for our, for shot putting to, they make it so difficult to try to win that medal. Mm. So to be able to overcome the, you know, the delays, because when you're at the Olympic games, the, like if a runner is on the track, they stop everything because you got to watch the, um, it was like the, the, the heptathlon was going on and the British girl was going to probably win. So they stopped, like they, we had a 15, 20 minute stop of, of throwing and we got to sit there and watch them run the 200 and the announcement, mm -hmm. they run it, they give the high five, they do the little interview and then they're like, okay, now you can throw. And you're like, well, how am I supposed to create any kind of rhythm? Cause I'm a rhythm, you know, rotation is a lot about rhythm and timing and you can't create that when you have 20 minute breaks. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, for me, I've been very successful when they just put us on an island and let us throw. Whereas NBC will come in and they will say, you got to stop this because we got to show it live. And the thing is, like, I, I think in the past, I think that was, that's, that's probably a big deal. But now in the information age, you just let people go and they're going to get the information out there. And then you can do a replay. It's not like anyone's losing anything. They're still watching on the Internet. Right. Yeah. Um. What, what are some of like, uh, your rules for success? Um, you know, that people that are listening to this right now could apply yeah. to their everyday life. You know, what are some, what are some things that led you to this bronze medal? Um, what are some things that led you to your world championships? What are some things, some disciplines or whatever that routines that you got into, uh, that allowed you be, to become so successful? Well, my, my approach to success is just consistency doing the little things all the time, even when it's annoying to do it. Um, see the goal and attack that a goal. And I know there's going to be a lot of people that tell you, you can't do something. And it's not that you want to be mean or rude to these people, but you just can't listen to people. They don't know, like people can't see your heart. They, people can't see your desire. It's not like you, you wear it on your chest or something. Right. Um, so if you want to be successful, in especially throwing, you better believe that you're going to be one of the best. The moment you don't believe you're going to be the best, you're going to come up against people like me that are going to beat you all the time. <laughs> and they're going to make you believe it's okay to lose you to me all the time. <laughs> You've got to go in and think I can beat anyone at any moment. And the, if they end up beating me on that day, it was just, they just had a day. Um, I'm eventually going to win. And th that's always been the way I've done things. Like I've always believed, yeah, I'm going to be successful. And every time I'm successful, it just kind of feeds into that monster of success. Like it's addictive when you get, when you start becoming successful at yeah. something, you're just like, I got to get more. 
and hopefully your low of losing isn't that low so that you can get back to getting back to that success there's it's like a performer you know they just they love that that crowd and everyone cheering for you and the same thing happens when you win because when you win they make you feel special they they you get to sign more autographs you you uh you get to meet new people and you get to see joy and happiness. Like the, the greatest thing about being an Olympic bronze medalist is going to elementary schools and putting a medal in the hand <laughs> of a six-year-old or an eight-year-old or going to a high school and having them touch an Olympic medal. That, I mean, it, to me, it's like, it's just another, me- I've won so many medals. <laughs> right. But to them, it's just like, I'm, I'm touching an Olympic medal. This could be the spark that changes that person's life forever. And that, that's the, that was always the best part about having a, a, a when I had it, <laughs> when I had the bronze What medal. happened to it? Um, I went to a, I was doing a charity event. I was in my manager's car. And so I put my medal in there. Cause you know, you go to these things, um, just trying to get people to generate more money to, you know, when Olympians close to you, they're like, Oh, let's give them some more money. So I brought my medal. It's all kind of one of my sticks to go and do stuff like this. Um, left it in the car during a Patriots Falcons game in the car park. Uh, two trucks, which happens to be uh, the Ford F-250s, they have a defect that you can pull the handle hard enough and it just pops the door. It doesn't matter if it's locked. And the people, the thieves that were looking for it and knew this about the car and popped it and they took out all the bags. They didn't take the crappy computer in there, but uh, they took my bag, they took my manager's bag, left all the golf clubs we had in it because it was a golf event. And uh, they went into the wind. And then, uh, well, then uh, the car next to us had uh, three guns in it. So the police obvious were like, well, if there's three weapons in, in the Atlanta area, we want to make sure we get those first. So that was it. And, you know, I called them. Hey, did anybody bring the metal back in? And, uh, and the way I look at it is I, I try to be upbeat and positive. This metal is, you know, when I had it, it touched, I can't tell you how many people's lives. And hopefully the person that has it, they need it. They need, like, they need that metal. And then maybe they never return it to me. But if it just does something for them that makes them feel special for just a moment, then the metal's doing its job. And then when it's over, hopefully that person can find it in their heart to take that metal and take it to the Atlanta Police Department and say, this is the medal for Reese Hoffa. Can you get in contact with him? And I get it back. And even if, even if the, literally the guy that stole it from me walked up to me, he's like, hey, I've had this for five years. I'm super <laughs> sorry. I'm like, okay, hey, I hope it had a great adventure. Because, you know, what ha- the thing is about medals are they stay in shoeboxes. I have shoeboxes of medals, <laughs> and they really don't go out there and touch people's lives. I would rather it touch someone's life. And if it made them feel positive, like, hey, what, what happened, man? And if he just like, hey, I was having a bad, I, I needed money. I thought I could sell it, but I just couldn't do it, and I gave it back to you. It's like, well, thank you very much, I, and I'm, I'll, then I'll take that medal and uh, – clean the gook off of it, and then I will go out to other elementary schools and let other kids touch it. Because that's what it's all about, is just reaching people's lives and making it positive. So you wouldn't kick the person's ass that stole <laughs> no, your medal? No. Shot I'm glad right you said that. No, uh, <laughs> no I, I don't think I could do that. Like, I mean, even when it was lost, I just felt bad about losing it. I never was like Smokey, somebody super stole, angry. Smokey, somebody stole his uh, bronze medal. Yeah. While he was at a charity event, Google it and let's see if we can find this thing. 
If you uh, track them down, if you tracked it down, like I mean, Smokey's got it. Smokey's got it. I was you know looked on eBay for months on end, waiting for that you know for something like that. I mean, it's got you know shop, but I think it has my name on it. I, I you know I've I've gotten a lot of. I mean, they can't take away being an Olympic bronze medalist. So right. I have that title. It's all. It's going to follow me for the rest of my life. It's just a medal, and I've I feel like I've accomplished so much in my life that if I lose one medal and I know other people put a lot mud I say this and there are a lot of people like I would kill I would murder the man that took my medal. <laughs> yeah. But I've had a lot of other positive things and overcome a lot of things that if I lose one medal that's fine. How do you keep it together? You know, you talked about uh kind of feeding this confidence monster. Yeah. Um how do you keep it together so you don't become like egotistical or you're not a dick to people? um that's that's more my parents um it would be very easy for me you know throughout my my career growing up and uh being have a big head and you know my dad really kind of is a big head yeah it is a big head but you know my dad (laughs) i think he just did a great job of explaining to me that you know you you're really good at what you do i am super proud of everything the way that you carry yourself and it's not fair to other people that see you because you, you're like, you're a role model. So you, if you just go out there and it's, it's all about, it's the Reese show all the time, Reese, 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 it, it kind of gets tired. But if you come from a perspective that, you know, I understand that I'm really good and it's like, it's like you, you've got to act like you've been there kind of things. Like this is just commonplace. I'm just really good at what I do. So I don't need to go there and tell you how great I am. If you don't already know I'm good at what I do, then maybe I need to work harder. You know, that that's the way I've looked at it. I don't want to go out there and make it the reshow. I just want to I just want people, I want to be someone that you can come up to me, you can talk to me and not feel like it's an intimidating situation. I'd rather you just come up and just have a conversation than to come up to me and say, oh my goodness, you're Reese Hoffa. You, uh, I saw you throw that one time and it changed my life forever. And <laughs> I can't believe I'm in the same area of you right now. That freaks me out more than just somebody's like, hey, I'm, I, I, really appreciate, I, I really like watching you throw. You do great work. That's awesome. And then we can just have a conversation. That is, that, to me, I love that more than people shaking. That shaking <laughs> makes me nervous, too. <laughs> yeah, you're like, whoa, what's going on with this person? <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, you know, some of your, you know, uh, the, way, the way that you've been successful through this consistency and a lot of positivity and, um, and building up a lot of confidence. Um, are you a person that uses, uh, some visualization, uh, before you get to these competitions and things like that, or what's your your secret? Um, I, you know, in my, in my, my man cave, my house, I have my own ring and I practice winning. I go out there and I imagine myself winning meets, actually physically going through. Like you have a shot put ring inside your house. Yeah. It's yeah. I have my, I have my own ring in my basement. That's awesome. That's dope. So I go in there and I turn on some Metallica. It's not normal, by the way, just so you know. That, no, I think it's pretty normal. No, most Standard practice. Most people don't have that. So I have a shot put ring in my house and I practice um, with my little shot put, a little, little, little foam one. It could be whatever. And I just practice. I'm at the Olympic Games. Uh, this is uh, the third throw. I got I to gotta throw something big. Uh, I go in there and I take it. Boom. I hit the throw. Oh, that's, that's an Olympic record. 
I just pray like, and maybe it's one of the quirky things about myself, but before I've gone to a competition, I have probably rehearsed winning that meet a hundred times physically and mentally. So that's what I do on, on the, uh, the plane. I, I just, I constantly like, I feel myself in the positions I need to be in. And I'm like, sometimes I'll be on like in first class, I'm jerking around because I'm feeling myself turn through the ball and crazy stuff like that. So that that's part of it. It's just, I, I, I'm constantly in my mind winning and being successful so that when I get there and I'm just, I'm just doing what I've rehearsed a hundred times. Uh, did your wife travel uh, with you to some of these competitions? Um, she, um, my wife really likes going to the Olympic games and the other ones, she trusts that I can make it to and from those events without hurting myself. <laughs> but, um, I have, she's traveled to, I, I took her to a three meet series and she went and did it. And then she said, I don't want to do this ever again because, you know, I went to, we went to Sweden and we get off the plane, uh, immediately go get something to eat. I go to the track, I do warm up. I come back to the hotel and then I'm just resting. And then she's like, well, I'm super tired. Not a big deal. So we're there, you know, the fourth day we get in a car, we drive from uh, Warsaw, Poland to Bitgosh by taxi. And that's a four hour drive in a car. She's like, uh, super tired. <laughs> uh, I guess we'll rest. So I get there, I take a rest to compete the next day. And then we get on a plane, get up at, you know, six o'clock in the morning. We fly to Italy, go to the hotel. And she's just like, all you do on these trips is go to a hotel room or go to a track. You're just you, you, like, you don't do anything. You don't like, you don't go and see the sites. I'm like, this is kind of the job. Like I get on a plane, I do recovery. So, you know, with Corey, Corey, when I, whenever I leave, we, we write out our, uh, our workout program. Like, this is what we're going to do. When you get off the plane, you do this and then you do that. And then, you know, I have a plan with my coach. So anytime I do like a major, and usually they're always halfway across the country. Uh, we have a plan every day. I have to go and get water, so it makes me get out of my hotel room, navigate through somewhere, and it keeps me awake. And I do this until I finally acclimated, which is very annoying, and I don't like doing it, but it's been very successful. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that's just those kinds of things. So my when my wife travels, when she does this kind of stuff, she's just like, I hate traveling with you because you don't do anything fun, and everything you do is track related. Yeah, she doesn't want to be with you when you're uh, fully concentrated on the competition. I, I am really boring when I'm in competition. When I'm in competition mode, I'm just, I am literally a robot. I mean, that's what the Europeans think of me. they like, I'm Reese Hoffa, the throwing robot. And they just, they, they can't believe someone could do what I do. Like, I'll go and compete on Monday, travel Tuesday, Wednesday, and still, like, there's no reduction in, in results. Like, they'll go do the same thing. And they live in Europe. Where it's like they only fly an hour and a half, and they could actually go home before going to another one. Mm. I'm living at a hotel room, and I still throw really far <laughs> all the time. They're just like, "Do you ever not throw far?" So that's where the kind of the drug talk comes in. They're like, "So what are you? What do you want? Like you got to be on something because there's no like this is un inhuman." I'm like, "No, if you, you know, you just you gotta have confidence in what you're doing." And I'm crazy in thinking that I should never not be successful. You mentioned doing things, uh, you know, that, that you don't want to do. And you mentioned, you kind of said they were annoying when you feel something be a, when you feel something is being annoying, yeah. does that attract you to go through it? Cause you know, the result, like after you've been teaching yourself this over the years. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was, 
I never, it was, it's annoying to the thing, uh, to the point where if I, if I don't do it, it will drive me crazy. I can't go to bed. Like if I did not go downstairs and practice winning and doing all the stretching stuff, I would not sleep well at night. I just, I couldn't sleep. I would be, I would, I'd have to physically, like, it didn't matter if it was at one o'clock in the morning. If I was supposed to do that on that day, I have to do it. It's my OCD, I guess. Um, I have to do it because if I don't, I know I'm going to, I, I won't sleep well. I will regret it. The world will end. And, and like, because I didn't do this, it'll be the reason why I can point back to why I wasn't successful at a track meet. And I never want to be in that position. It feels horrible. It probably makes you uh, extremely irritable, right? Like nope. if just, just like <laughs> circumstances got out of control and, uh, you were stuck, you know, on a plane and the plane didn't take off, right. All these different things like they happen when you travel, you know? So, oh yeah. Sometimes it's like, okay, uh, yeah, I know I'm supposed to do this, but it, it's, it's almost unreasonable for me to even ask myself to do this at this point. I really just need to go to bed, <laughs> but you, you're, it's got to piss you off like crazy, right? Um, I find a way to do it. Um, so I was flying from, uh, flying to Doha in, uh, and you know, I went from the U S to Germany and from Germany, you gotta, you gotta stop in Saudi Arabia because you gotta Saudi Arabian airspace. We hit a bird on the way in and it, uh, damaged our plane and, uh, they didn't let us go to a hotel room. So they put us in a broom closet, literally looked like a broom closet with a toilet. So this is at, I don't know, one o'clock in the morning. On my sheet, it says I'm supposed to do this. I'm doing that in the broom closet. I'm just, clear me some space. Just give me, and it really just give me 30 minutes and my sanity will be saved. Because if I don't, I'm, I'm going to, I'm just going to be jerking around in the room. Like, just like, I'll just say, okay, if I just do these, it'll be fine. Like I have to do something or I, I just, it just, it just wouldn't, I've never not did what I wanted to do. And when that started happening, I retired from the sport because I just, I, I just, I know like the, the, the curse is if you know what it takes to be great at something and then you stop doing that, you might as well retire. And that's what I had to do. I just, I couldn't make myself like I, I skipped like two days from, uh, doing the stretching workouts downstairs. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Usually I'm excited to go down there cause I get to put my music on. It's the one place my wife doesn't go. Um, and it's, I can do whatever I want in that room. And then all of a sudden it's like, I just go to bed and I don't feel bad about it. And I'm like, okay, oh, something's wrong. This, I'm, this is, this is the time I need to, I need to start looking at something else because I no longer have the passion and the drive to do really what's required to be great. That's crazy. Cause we just got a question from a, a rower who's actually, he had, he's had, he has had his sights set on becoming an Olympian. Yeah. Um, he kind of wanted to remain anonymous, but that was his first question. He was like, how do you know when it's time to retire? And you just answered it it's perfectly. When you, <laughs> yeah, when you can no longer do what's required to be great. And the thing is, like, I had been great. I've been on the top of that mountain. I've done it five times. I know what's required. I know what you have to do. And I know how much wiggle room you have to be great. So the moment I just physically couldn't do it. I'm like, I need to, I really need to seriously consider retiring. And, you know, Corey was there during that process. So like when I would go to a U.S. championship, generally I do nothing but that, that kind of stuff. So uh, my, my last year competing, I was like, Hey, 
do you want to come with me to U.S. indoors and outdoors and all this kind of stuff? I would never do that if I was really serious about competing. So almost in a way, it's like I almost kind of gave up. So that year in 2016, I make it to the world championship and I don't even go. Because I know like if I went to that, I know that I'm not going to perform up to what I would consider the Hoffa standard of performance. I was, I just, I wasn't doing what needed to be required. Wow. And then um, he had a follow-up question. At what point does a professional sport become unhealthy? Um, I mean, I feel like I've generally done it as healthy as I possibly can. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I have some unhealthy habits. Um, I mean, I would eat a whole loaf of bread after every single workout i go home. i know this, so this <laughs> is like how that. this is how i do it I, I would make four peanut butter jelly sandwiches and then i would make another additional three to four ham and cheese sandwiches i like it and then i would eat that every single day after training well not very healthy but i'm like it's just so delicious, it's so <laughs> delicious. i mean i i think <laughs> i think this guy's on the uh, the right track because you just answered his very next question so i don't know what's going on with that but um I'm feeling he, him right now yeah i know because he had asked like you know if if uh like how do you overcome an eating disorder that's that's come of you know be, because of the sport that you're in yeah so like i mean what, what were your struggles with that like at least once you stopped so, um, when I stopped, the, the first thing I had to do was I stopped, had to stop eating bread. Um, I, I was, I was a bread addict. I'm a cookie addict too. I'm an ice cream addict. Um, I was, so I had to just physically stop. Like, so the first step is when you go to the grocery store, don't buy it. <laughs> and you know, if I had people come over and they bring bread, I'd say, okay, I, I can have a sandwich and then I got to immediately throw it away <clears throat> right. and try to avoid it like the plague because it, it's it's like anything it's like a lays potato chip i can't stop at just one i know I, I know i have an issue so i try to just not do not eat that thing or try to cut down like i tried to do the the keto thing and not have any sugar right and it was really really it's it's so hard for those first couple of weeks because you're right. like my body is telling me and i'm like a, especially at night i'm like a grizzly bear i I'm, i want that sugar to put me into my, my put me in a stupor and being able to break it with other stuff is also the other key, like eating some, you know, I have a fruit or just like, I'm right. going to have a hot dog or something. Stuff, <laughs> right. like stuff like that. Yeah. Something that's helped me. I, I, I kind of had the same thing for many years and I would just try to make something that was, uh, uh, just like real savory, you know, real, yeah. real fulfilling. So like I would make like an omelet or something, you know, it's not the same as like diving into ice cream and it's, no definitely kind of the opposite of sweet but i was like this isn't a bad gig you know eating a four egg or five egg omelet with a bunch of cheese and a bunch of sausage or bacon in it like this oh, yeah. it's gonna taste pretty damn good mm -hmm. or even just uh some high quality steak with some butter on it or something it's like that's gonna taste really good i know it's not the same as the peanut butter cup that i want to kill but you know so you got to figure out a way to replace it somehow it's i think it's if you're going to survive that and you know i've like anyone else, I've fallen off the wagon and had one too many Oreo cookies and, <laughs> and stuff. But, you know, when you finally kind of commit to doing it, you just got to you just gotta only have the good stuff available. So when I, when, we, when I really commit to do it, I have nothing that has sugar in my house. And if it is, it's very like it, I didn't realize it was in there. Right. Just right. like you just, you just right. you avoid it. Like my cupboards are empty because I try to 
because I what would happen is I would have like cereal in my house that has all this sugar, but I know it's going to be delicious. So I stopped buying milk. <laughs> so it's like, well, I have all this cereal, but it doesn't taste good without milk. So I, I don't. So I don't eat it. So right. like I had boxes of cereal like when I was going through this, like where it would just stay on my shelf, and we just finally just had to throw it away because it it met its uh, expiration mm-hmm. date. Mm-hmm. So yeah. What's your favorite cereal? Um, I would do. I love I love them all. Like it would be cruel to say, "What's your favorite cereal?" It's like trying to say, "What's your favorite child?" Just don't do that. Yeah, just what's like I like I would do Life, Honey Bunches of Oats, Raisin Bran. I'm all about variety, Mm. so I like all the different kinds of cereals that, and then all their delicious flavors. (laughs) Um, I could do you know even um, Wheaties and. All kinds of stuff. Like just you just pour enough sugar on it to make it delicious. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's just that's just how I, I did it. Like the, the yeah, sugar. Life cereal is underrated. It is. Well, the cinnamon life is delicious. Yeah, I love cinnamon life. It's, it's like, not a bad it's like, life. It's a crack cocaine <laughs> of the, the Hoffa household. Tight. So you're traveling all over the world. We talked about this a little earlier. Yeah. You're in and out of hotels. You're probably having a lot of random new foods. Yeah. A lot of stuff on the go. Absolutely. There has to be a poop story somewhere in there. There's always a poop story somewhere. <laughs> Especially, uh, yeah, throwing as hard as you were throwing. I mean, something had to happen. Putting down as much and calories as you can. spinning around like that. Ooh. It's got to shake everything up. So my my, um, my poop story kind of is, uh, I get drug tested a lot. Uh, World Anti-Doping and U.S. Anti-Doping come and get me as much as they possibly can to make my life really hard. It's clear you're on tons of clear, shit. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, where I, I use the bathroom and they decided this day... They wanted to get me in the middle of the day. So I'm already, I'm out there throwing. I'd already peed. But, you know, moving around that lot, I jostled a little something in my belly. And um, so I'm drinking tons of water, but it was blocking urethra from u- getting urine out. I had to create space. So um, we, I go to the University of Georgia, the football program. I, I was good friends with those guys. Like, hey, I need to do a drug test. Can I do it here? And they're like, whatever you want, Reese. So I take the drug tester. We go in the room. I'm like, listen, um, nothing's coming out of my pee hole unless something comes out the bunt hole. <laughs> so, um, you know, he pops a squat. You know, when, they do, when you're getting drug tested, it's really invasive. Like, there's no modesty. So you pull your shirt up to your shoulders, and you pull your pants pretty much down to your ankles. So they get the whole gun show. So I'm like, look, I gotta, I gotta go boom boom. And uh, so he, he, so I bend over. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna do it. He's like, fine, whatever. And apparently, I ate something that kind of died in my stomach. <laughs> uh, and uh, I let it go. And it just, and then the, the guy, if he could jump through the door he would have but the door would not give oh no he is shrieking he's like shrieking on the the, uh, up against the door because the smell hit him like a mike tyson punch to the face Mm. and i'm just like okay and then i I stand up i don't even wipe i just stand up i pee in the cup i put it down (laughs) and the second wave hit me. So I, oh. you know, I fit you, you know, the you, second wave, the second wave. So I, I finished. We, we about talk the about the second wave, wave. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> the second, and you know, I finished my second wave <laughs> and this is the guy can't leave the room until my <laughs> urine sample's gone. So he gets the whole shebang bang on how I do it. And, um, needless to say, when we finally left the room and he finally got some clean air, cause he almost died. He was trying to hold his breath the whole time. Uh, he retired. He, he, uh, you know, you get so I. I have been drug tested. You forced him into early retirement. 
I mean, I've been drug tested thousands of times. Been of those thousands of times, the same guy drug test. You see him all the time, and um, he never came back. Never saw him again. There was a new guy. People don't know when to retire. You know, like he he, he stayed. Didn't... He stuck around for too long. A lot of people. I mean, Brett Favre. You know, a lot of people do it too long. They hang it. They hang around the same profession <laughs> for too long. He could have retired and went out on top, and look what happened. He he, he got on he got bottom. a wave, and I think he <laughs> someone convinced him because it's you know usually it's pretty traditional. You go in there and you pee in the cup and you're done. But when you run into someone that's like, I'm going to literally take the most rancid poo <laughs> that's ever hit your nostrils. That makes you real think about your uh, your life decisions in terms of do I really Could want? Could you imagine to- the conversation he had with his wife that night? This guy took a full out dump in front She's of She's like, me. I've been telling you to quit that stupid job for so long anyway. It doesn't even pay you that well. Yeah. That, but He's like, I know. I gave up medical I really school love looking shit. at guys' dicks, though. <laughs> but the, if, you know, if that is something you like, be a drug tester. Because there's a lot of hogs out there for you. Yep. <laughs> a, lot, a lot out there. And, you know, somebody's got to watch. Yep. Someone's got to watch and look at it. I'd rather be a blood tester. You don't have to see that. You just sit down in a chair and they just take your blood. Easy. Yeah. Sound, sounds uh, a lot more delightful. A lot, more, a lot more glamorous. Yeah. How'd you get into this Rubik's Cube stuff? Because that's kind of weird. Well, um, I I really like kind of nerdyish, borderline nerdish stuff. You know, Rubik's Cube's not really that nerdy. But uh, I it saw is. The, no, I, is it? Yeah, it's I weird. Think it, it's pretty cool, right? No. It's like magic. That's why I look at <laughs> Rubik's Cube's like the mad. It's like magic. So um, I saw a kid on the bus while I was in college. He was doing the Rubik's Cube, and I instantly was fascinated by how fast he was moving his fingers and watching the colors move around. It was pretty. And um, that day, went to Walmart, bought a Rubik's Cube, said, I'm, I'm going on the adventure. I mixed it, uh, mixed, uh, mixed it up and started that three-month journey to try to figure it out. Um, what eventually happened was I ended up finding this kid in his dorm. I caught, knocked on his door, and he's like, well, how did you get in here? And I'm like, uh, I know some people. And I was like, hey, look, can you teach me the Rubik's Cube? And he's like, but I got other stuff to do. And I had to threaten him a little bit. And um, I held him down, and he wrote down the algorithms. <laughs> and um, then I, I learned, and he became my master. And I became a slave. And, you know, the, I, now I do the Rubik's Cube. And then you competed in it before, too? Or I competed. This, this looks is, like this a competition. <laughs> it is a competition. Um, I decided to test my skills against uh, nine and 10 year olds in the Rubik's Cube in a, at the bottom of a church where all great Rubik's Cube competitions mm. um, are taking place. Um, I didn't make it out of the, this is pool play. So everyone gets kind of the same scrambles and uh, the top 30 people move on to the head to head uh, rounds. Which <laughs> is, I, there, is there a lot of rules to this thing? Um, there's a few rules. Like you look at it, you put it down, put your hands on the pad, and then you pick your hands up and solve the Rubik's Cube as fast as you can. Uh, my PR was, uh, it was I think it was a, a, a solve that I'd seen before. So I nailed it. How, how about how many seconds does... Uh... Like what's like the world record for it or whatever? Any oh, it's idea? like eight seconds. So really? you're looking at this is this is a Hoff original. That's why my picture's up there. That's that is state of the art uh, kind of graphics. What you're seeing there. <laughs> that's, that's, that is fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating. I think we uh, found another editor. That's right. That, that, yeah, you can't tell you. Originally, there's a there's a TV screen. I put it in the TV screen. I thought it looked dumb, <laughs> but um, I just got I just I saw this online. 
and said, hey, I want to try this. I want to test my skills to see if I if I can make it out of it. I knew I'm not very good. This is the cube you see there. That's like my old competition cube. Now I have like a $26 mm. uh, Ruby's cube that goes much faster. You know, the corner cutting is incredible on it. Do you have to like lube it up? The, the Ruby's oh, yeah. cube I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta lube it up. So when I first started doing it, I used to use, um, with petroleum jelly as my lubricant and it ate, the entire plastic out of the inside of my Ruby's cube. You switched to coconut oil. It's more healthy. Well, I, I moved to a silicone, and now they have like the specialty uh, lubes that you can get from Ruby's cube. They come in little little syringes. Really? They got their own lube. They have their own lube. So, the, <laughs> so they're watching. There's so many. This is you get. You have five attempts. So, um, and then there's. Uh, are there different ways to solve it other than just matching up all the colors? Well. I am, there's the, uh, like people Fred, do different a, shit with it. There's a Frederick method, which everyone pretty much uses. And then what I call the Pinot the guy that my master's technique who taught it to me. I don't know what, what it's called or it's oh. just a different way. So there's a couple ways. So you can solve it those ways. You can also use a four by four algorithms to solve the, the three mm-hmm. by three. So whenever I'm training the four by four, I'm working those algorithms on my Ruby's cube. Is there is there other way like in competition? Do they put it together any other way than just matching all the colors together? They're, that's the only way they okay. they pretty much do it. So what they do is they have this group of people that stand on the side and they do nothing but scramble cubes, mm. and then they bring it out covered, and they put it in front of you, and they take the bag away, and you look at it, and I think you have a minute, and you decide, okay, what are my first couple moves, and then you put your hand on the sensor, and then you go. Mm. That's how you do it. There you go. Yep. And, and so you own a gym, right? <laughs> own a gym, uh, Corblin Training and Wellness and Half of Those Academy. Uh, that's where the magic happens, basically. Um, own with uh, me, Corey Davis, and Jordan Clark. Uh, we have kind of the tripod effect. And we just, I teach people, I also do massage therapy out of there. But we teach people how to be better. That's really what we just try. We do small group, individual personal training. Um, I do the thrust training and shot and discus. and we do a little bit of strongman. We do, it's just, it's like the, the gym for, it's the average Joes of the world. We have a lot of people that come from different uh, backgrounds, from lawyers to stay-at-home moms, soccer moms, that just want to get better physically, and we just help them on that journey. What's your favorite thing to do when it comes to the gym? Like, what's your favorite kind of person to train or work uh, with? So, for me, um, my favorite clients are the ones that are very knowledgeable about football. Um, have a little nerd so that if I'm like, yeah, I can do the Rubik's Cube, they're impressed. <laughs> uh, very enthusiastic. I love enthusiastic and people that like pushing themselves further than they realized. Mm. So you just put, you know, when we're lifting, I kind of look at where they're at. And sometimes I'll say, well, we're going to go up by 10 pounds. And they're like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm like, just trust me. Just go ahead and do it. Just give me everything you have on this last set. Right. And they go and do it and they just surprise themselves. Or um, we do, I, I, I do squats, but I also couple that with some box jumps and mm. just trying to increase people's uh, vertical leaps. So we'll do, I'll go up there and we have a, like a 30 inch box and they've never jumped. They jumped on a 16 inch box the last time. And I'm just like, Hey, we're jumping on this box. You just move your, you know, get your, your knees a little higher or whatnot. And to see the excitement and happiness in a client's eyes that did like jumped on a box. They've never jumped, jumped on in their entire life is that that's really that's the moment it's not the 
when they come in and they do the normal workout every single day. It's when they go out there and they do something and they just, it blows their mind. Like I didn't think my body could do this and they do it. And then all of a sudden now that becomes a new norm. And it's like, in my mind, it's like, I knew you could always do this, but once you get over that psychological barrier that tells you no, and then you finally say yes, now it just opens up a whole new world of what's the next new barrier for them to kind of crush. How, what's it like uh, being able to coach uh, kids and, and being able to coach them in, in terms of uh, the shot put? Well, when it comes to that is, it's a lot of fun. So I coach kids from fifth grade to professional. So I run the gamut. So some of the kids were just teaching how to do a stand throw and watching the growth of a 10 or 11 year old kid learning how to like use her hips and push through the ground and strike the ball without throwing it like a baseball. It, it's incredible. And then all of a sudden, you know, they start out at, let's say, 20 feet and then they break 25 for the first time or they break 30 feet for the first time. And they just they're they're very excited and super happy and. You know, in the state of Georgia, we have really good youth, uh, youth track and field. So they have plenty of opportunities to test their skills against kids their same age. And when they go to these competitions and are successful and they just they didn't realize that maybe track and field is something they could do um, outside of the sports they're doing. Because I'm a big proponent of, OK, yeah, I want you to do track and field. But if you're also a swimmer, I think you should swim. You know, if you do basketball, do basketball, too, and play football. Um, I hate having kids that say when they're 10 or 11 years old, I am now going to be only baseball or I'm only going to play football for the rest of my life. I'm like, you're missing out on opportunities to teach yourself other movements that are going to come in to play when you're doing that sport. Mm. Like, I love when someone's like, yeah, I was a baseball player. It's like, okay, at least they know how to use their hips because that's one of the things you need to do to be a baseball player. But if that's all they've done now, it's like they've, they've honed these motor patterns that now you have to overcome. That's pretty hard. But I love it when they're like, yeah, I play baseball, I play football, I do basketball, I swim, I do a little bit of wrestling, but I also want to do track and field. That's letting me know this kid really wants to be, or their parents want them to be a very well-rounded athlete. And usually they're the easiest athletes to coach because they have moved in so many different ways. It makes it easy when I add another little wrench into their movement patterns. What's it like to be able to, you know, mentor some of these kids and be able to uh, not just share the throwing with them, but some of your experiences? Um, that's uh, that's actually pretty fun. Um, I general uh, consensus with the athletes is when they first meet me, they are terrified and scared <laughs> of me, like thinking I'm this mean person. But then when you kind of tear down some walls, they're just like I'm just like a normal person. So it makes it really easy to kind of mentor them and let them know, like, okay, hey, we're going to go to a competition where there's going to be 50 kids. Uh, this is how we're going to attack this competition. And when they do it well and they are very successful, life is awesome. Mm -hmm. And even when if they go there and they don't do the best, that's also where you get to be a mentor and just say, hey, this it's okay. Hey, there's just one competition. There's, you know, you're going to be in so many different ones. Don't just get down because you didn't do well in this meet, hey, let's focus on the next one that's going to come up in a couple more weeks, and we'll correct the mistakes. That's why we go to practice, or that's why we, we do these competitions, is we need you to kind of fail a little bit, because if you're perfect all the time, you'll never grow, because you'll keep wanting to do the same thing over again. I need you to fail so you'll be open to change and uh, make things better within your technique. What's uh, something that motivates you and inspires you nowadays? What motivates and inspires me? Um, 
my uh, pursuit for trying to, to sire a child. Um, that's uh, one of my main goals. I mean, I put it off throughout my entire career. So I'd love to be able to have a kid. Um, my second kind of big thing is I really enjoy working with the higher end athletes, like kind of the professionals, trying to teach them what it takes to be a professional, just the, the small nuances. It's not always if you do this. Look, man, lift. you got to eat an entire <laughs> loaf of bread after every training session. That's not once a week, not twice a week, and not half a loaf of bread, an entire loaf of bread. It's the uh, do as I say, not as I did uh, kind of philosophy. But just uh, just showing them the ropes like, hey, you need to do these kind of competitions. You need to compete against these people. Because it's easy to just kind of stay in your fishbowl um, as a pro and say, I'm just going to do the easy competitions, go throw against a bunch of college kids that don't know what they're doing. Um, I, would, I always push our athletes to say, hey, there's this competition where there's going to be five really good throwers hey let's figure out a way to get you over there and let's test your skills under extreme pressure and it's okay to go there and fail but you need to put yourself in that position because these are the people that you eventually have to beat if you fear people then you're not going to be successful because you're going to think you should fail i want you to go in there and let's say you beat two of them then now you're like oh that's two more people i can beat when it counts we've had uh, rob mcintyre on the podcast before Love AKA Rob. spray. Yep. Um, how, how did you get to know Rob That's at the university of Georgia? I'd imagine, at at right? the university of Georgia, he was doing his uh, undergraduate work there right when I was kind of finishing up myself. Uh, he worked with the uh, university of Georgia athletics in terms of the, in the weight room. He's not actually a proctologist. So you know, that, right? <laughs> That's not what I was told. Okay. Okay. I, I figured <laughs> something like that. happened. No, but, um, you know, Rob is very knowledgeable about lifting, even when he was in, in college. Uh, incredible drummer. I'm not sure if you talked about his time. He, as did. A, he, he, he's, he did. His Dan Fest days were absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. I, I was the keg sponsor for a couple of those. Awesome. Um, but, you know, Rob was just, he's just awesome. Everything about Rob is amazing. And some of the things that he is able to talk me into to doing. I'm not sure if he talked about the donut eating contest. No, what is what's the going on? Contest that we'd done at <laughs> Georgia. But um What what happened with this donut eating contest? Well, we're all hanging out at Rob's house. You know, he's playing on the drums and you know, we're just doing rock. Have you and ever roll seen stuff. him in his gimp mask? I have not. Oh, okay. I don't know if I want to see that. Never mind. Okay. But anyway, <laughs> so we're we're hanging out at Rob's house. Um, we I think it's at, I don't know, one o'clock in the morning. And one of, I had already graduated, so one of the throwers at Georgia was just happened to hang out with us. And he's like, you know what, Reese? I think I could eat more donuts than you. And I'm like, well. Those are I'm fighting a, words. That's I know. I'm like, very I'm disrespectful. A, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty good eater. <clears throat> so Rob, you know, he wrote, you know, with Rob, everything's very official. He wrote up a contract um, <laughs> for, um, for the competition. And uh, obviously he has it filmed. I mean, you know, we did the film, the pre- the pre-donut eating competition stuff. So we're doing a lot of smack talking and uh, I have a, um, a manager during this and we're, you know, doing our stuff and uh, they go to Krispy Kreme and I think they, I think we get four dozen donuts and we begin to go. Now I didn't realize that once you start eating those mini donuts, uh, the yeast is what's going to get you because mm. it starts expanding in your stomach. And so you know, we, we knock out the first dozen in, five minutes 
And then we uh, started on the second dozen, and then the yeast is starting to expand in my stomach. Ooh. And, you know, I... Talk I, about I, a poop story. I know. So I make it through two dozen, and then 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 we went to jellies. Now, that's that's some heavy hitters. So we're already full. We're... we're 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 twenty four donuts deep right now, <laughs> and needless to say, I, I lost because I could not handle the jelly filled donuts. Uh, the guy's name's Kyle Health. I think he's a throws coach somewhere. I can't remember where. He ended up beating me, and then I had to you know do a a practice of shame where I had to keep my head down and present like get his shot and present it to him like <laughs> he's a king for the entire practice. It was, it was <laughs> stupid, but it, it's it's those kinds of things like Rob like Rob is known for his incredible videos. So if you go down to Tampa and go to his place, he's going to film everything you do. <laughs> it, Rob is probably has the greatest collection of videos of just the randomness of, you know, um, one of our throwers went to a waffle house and stripped naked <laughs> and walked out just for a reaction to see what would happen with the waffle house employees. That that's what Rob will have you do, you know. Just you're just like, why am I doing this? And Rob's like, no, no, it's cool, man. Just do it. It's gonna be fun. That's Rob. And 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 within all that, you know, he taught me how to squat. You know right. that kind of stuff. Like, uh, I had horrible squat technique. And then Rob kind of came in. And he's like, hey, he had a powerlifting background. He's like, hey, why don't you just move the bar down your neck a little bit? And it changed my life. So I was like a three seventy five squatter, and then boom, I'm squatting five hundred. He asked a lot of questions. You know, that's what you get from people that are really smart. Yeah. He'll ask you a lot of questions and you're like, I don't know. Like he'll <laughs> ask you, you know, he'll ask you something real specific. Like you say something, he follows it up with like multiple questions and you're like, dude, I don't, I don't know why I do that. Or I don't know, you know, like, what's this for? What's that for? I'm like, mm. I, I'm like, I don't know. Would you shut up? <laughs> Rob, Rob doesn't ask me questions. He just calls me fat all the time. Oh, well, he is pretty, he is in pretty good shape. He's in incredible shape. He has, like, at his gym, he has this little thing that'll tell you the amount of fat tissue between your muscles. Oh, no. And Who wants to know that? Apparently he does. No. And, you know, he made me do it. That's because like, he tests really well on it, right? Yeah, he's like, he's like, hey, Reese, put this on there. I'm like, oh, is all that space, that's the good space. He's like, no, Reese, that's the fat. You must get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> but I love, I mean, the thing is, I love Rob. Rob is awesome. Um, I wish he wouldn't have left Athens because we lost, we lost a great person when he went down. I mean, Cena apparently needed him, which for something, Cena, I don't already... know what he needs him for, but Cena's jacked. He doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need yeah. help. Does I'm he? hoping one day I can go back down to Tampa and take back my snatch record that Cena took from me. Mm. So he had the record at 297. I went down and made it 303 and then he only went two pounds up and went 305. Mm. I, I don't. Crap. I don't think he appreciated because you know I was yelling and screaming and telling him I was the greatest in the world. And <laughs> Cena's like, I'm not going to let that happen. Who is this guy? It's this... kind of a crap deal. <laughs> he just, he just, he just went up uh, two pounds. I I thought it was more respectful to go up by you know almost five. Yeah. But you know it, it's 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 John, Mr. Cena. Don't look him in the eye. He owns the gym. He does own the gym. But it'd be cool to go down. I I just like to meet him and just have a good old snatch off. Snatch off. Yeah. What about uh, <laughs> he goes to do a snatch, and you come out of nowhere and just forearm him right in the lower back? I thought about that. <laughs> you know, I thought about that. See, if if I so would you I, wear a mask or no? Yeah, I probably should. Yeah. Um, when you don't want your identity <laughs> out there. So when we went down to do that, we I did a competition in Florida, won the meet, and then we drove down the two hours down to Tampa from Gainesville 
to go do this, and I wasn't in my right state of mind. So if I was in my if my proper state of mind, I would have definitely got more shit talk to Cena. Like, this is mm-hmm. my gym. <laughs> don't ever do the snatch again. If you ever do, I'm going to come down here and smack you or something. I don't know. How do you get the record at the gym? You just have to be at the gym? Yeah, you, you don't have to, have to be like a member. You just have to go there. Well, yeah, I think you just—I don't know. See, I know you, if you know the guy that owns the gym, he can bend the rules a little bit. Mm. Like I'm not an official member of the gym, but he was telling me what the records were. And then, you know, when I came here, that's the first thing I wanted to do. I was like, "What's the records? Which ones can I take?" <laughs> and they—they they have like a top five board. So, like, can I give my name on the top four? It's like me peeing in your gym a little bit. Like mm. Hoffa's in the gym, so I went down there and I was like, 297. Anybody can do that. So I'm like, I could take that. I mean, at least it should be 300 plus, right? So I went down and th- did 303. I should have done, see, if I, I was pulling hard that I was, I, I was really feeling it that day. I should have went a lot higher. Mm. But, you know, I have some friends that do powerlifting that will get me properly prepared for that, maybe 315-ish, mm. so that Cena will never, <laughs> ever have that record. And he'll have to see my name <laughs> on the top as the champ. His name's all over his own board, <laughs> I noticed. He has, I think well, he's got some of his own rules going on. He does. Well, I'm sure if if Cena's like, look, re, we can't have someone that fat as part of it, uh-huh. Rob will change the rules. Yeah. Because it'll, be like, well, it'll for, probably be like body weight ratio kind of record. Yeah. And, well, I'll never reach that. It's for publicity and stuff. You can't have, you know, right? Yeah. You know, I, I just, <laughs> I love I just think it's awesome that, you know, he has a lot like those, those wrestlers are, they're mutant athletes. Let's, let's be real. I've, I mean, there's, I think their bench record is like 560 and the guy just, he just puts it down there. Yeah. What's it? Uh, what's that guy's name? That guy's, that guy's, he's a, he's a, like he put it down there, ate a sandwich (laughs) and then he lifted it up off his chest. Like it was nothing. He might've benched 585. He's competed in USAPL too. And he's just, uh, he's absolutely enormous. He's not, he's not fat. He's, he's He's pretty monster. He's pretty damn jacked. And, uh, uh, yeah, he's also, um, it's like Biggie something. Biggie Langston. Yeah. Biggie Langston. That guy is a machine. I think he, I want to say deadlifted like eight. 30 or something he went to i think it was a national meet he went to like usapl nationals and he did what he did well in the squat um i want to say maybe he squatted close to eight mm-hmm. and then it just turned out his bench ended up going really well too so he went three for three and then he got down to the end of the contest and he had an opportunity um to beat the vanilla gorilla having a hard time remembering his exact name right now what's his name who blaine sumner blaine sumner (laughs) yep so he he went uh head to head with blaine sumner and uh rob was with him rob Mm -hmm. rob was with uh biggie langston and he said hey he goes you know what it's uh all you got to do is pull 821 and you win the meet and he's like do you think you can pull 821 and biggie langston's like yeah i think so shouldn't be too hard went out there just picked it up and rob's like it was ridiculous he's like he picked it up so easy and he put it back down i mean he he i think he's competed just a couple times and he he won the national i mean that's that's not that's not an easy thing blaine sumner is insanely strong yeah i mean he's one of the strongest lifters of our like time and this guy just came in and just kicked his ass (laughs) i'd love to be able to do that that would be cool 
Yeah. But more in the Rubik's Cube world. I want to be able to win a Rubik's Cube competition. Yeah. But different well, goals. I think you started something new with that shot put that you did uh, in our store. Yeah. Um, I I got to admit, I was practicing at home mm. in preparation for that. This first two attempts that I missed, that was all for show, just setting up the finale of me nailing it. The cornhole shot put world championships. That sounds like an appropriate name, yes. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Any other questions over there? No, that's all I got, man. All right. Come on, people. <laughs> uh, where can people find you if they want to follow along? Um, you can find me at uh, hoffathrows.com. You can find me at corblandtraining.com. You can find me at hoffathrows on Instagram. What's... You can... What's this? Where, where's oh, your gym at? Oh, we're at uh, Cor- Corbin Training. But uh, the beautiful shirt you're wearing there is a product we call the Forge. Oh, um, oh yeah, yeah. That's yep. your massager thingy. That's it's yeah. It's uh, just one of those devices. Uh, Donnie Thompson was uh, so gracious to have us up at his facility and uh, taught us all about it. And uh, and when we came back, instead of lugging around a 125 pound ex-wife. Um, you can have something that weighs about 30 pounds. It's a little bit safer putting it on your body. Uh, you can actually put the 35 pounds on your ba- on your on your body, on your hamstrings, quads, wherever, and you can side load it where it actually make it a lot safer. Oh, cool. It'll make it a lot safer putting it on and off your body, and you could uh, increase mobility. It just it makes your body feel a lot better, especially after a hard workout, pre and post. Um, we we use this before you lift. You can do it after you lift. And uh, one of the main reasons we have this is. You know, if I wanted to to get up to 250 pounds, which would be what I would need on my lower back and hamstrings, <laughs> um, that uh, to get one of those to go to a metal shop and actually have that produced would cost a ridiculous amount of money, right. and the freight on that would just be even more ridiculous. So we came up with a device that only weigh that only costs you about 389 dollars that you can use on your entire body. Basically, having a whole collection of body tempering advice is the Forge. Uh, it's safer. We have handles on it. We have the groove in the middle for your spine. Cool. Um, there is, it's just, it's awesome. Um, it definitely has helped me out immensely. Um, in conjunction, of course, with Corey Davis. Um, it just, it's, I think this is definitely a game changing device. And the more we put it on people's bodies, University of Georgia's football program bought it. Uh, Xavier basketball's bought it. You know, That's great. we're just, we're going, we're kind of like the Pied Piper of mobility. Just getting this into people's hands. The moment we put it on their bodies, they just it clicks. Boom! Instantly, they're like, "Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I got to get this." Yeah, that's a, a tough part is uh, having a product that uh, people have to feel, you know, to yeah. truly understand. You know, yeah. And we you know we've there's some people that understand it and they will just instantly buy it. But for some, you know, for some programs, you just got to put it on their body. So you know, it's really nervous going into the University of Georgia football program. Just after them winning the getting to the national championship game, and you know, unfortunately, not finishing the deal against Alabama, um, and then putting it on those those coaches, and they're just like, "We need this," and you know, they they almost wouldn't let us leave until we sold them six, and that that was awesome. And you know, they do videos with it now, right. and they and that that's pretty awesome. So the more places we've been able to go and show it to people and put it on people's body. Um, they're just, it's, it's awesome. It's almost a religious experience. <laughs> what, what does it do? Obviously it's kind of like massaging, but body tempering is a little different where you can just literally just put something on a yeah. location and, and it can help, uh, with some muscle soreness and help with recovery and stuff like that. Yeah. Right? So, it, you know, it's, you come in, you have, you're breaking down muscle tissue. So your fascia basically is kind of sticking. 
and it just helps loosen up that that fascia, separating those fibers, let them lay a little bit better. You don't get as much sticking. There's also you can turn it on its end and get pinpoint. If you have big uh, adhesions there, you can put it on there and release those areas. Um, it's it's a great tool. It's a I hate saying it's like aggressive foam rolling because mm-hmm. it's not. Because one of the things I, I had problems with is holding my body up. I'm I'm a big fatty at, at what I was. Um, holding my body up and doing you know uh, quad work mm. in on my elbows and trying to hold a particular position. Whereas with this, I just sit down. I put the weight on my legs, and there you go. It's it's doing its job. I can hold it for long periods of time. And it, it seems like it doesn't, it, it really helps. And I can do it on my hamstrings. You can hit the uh, calves. You can do it on your lower back. It's, it's pretty awesome. It just gives you another tool. Cause like, you know, the foam rolling thing can be great at times, but, uh, it's hard. It's also hard, really hard to relax on a foam roller. Exactly. You know, I, I feel like everything on me is so tight that it's hard for me to like, um, be able to get much relief from from a lot of those types of things because I, I have my body weight on it. If I'm trying to rub my back on a foam roller, mm-hmm. then I'm like flexing my stomach mm-hmm. and my back's not really, uh, and then also uh, because I'm so tight, shit hurts so bad that I'm like, ah, you know. And that's where, you know, being able to have a device. Running over the butt feels so good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's, it's great to have a device that you can go in and say, okay, I'm going to start at 100 pounds. Mm. And then maybe tight and then all of a sudden you start feeling um, a bit of a release. You're like, maybe I could do a little bit more instead of having to go lug out another big, you know, body tempering, another hundred and whatever pound, you can just say, Hey, put another 25s on there. Boom. And it's just, it's so quick. It's so easy. Um, we figured out ways of potentially doing it by yourself. I mean, it, 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 I don't, there's nothing out there that's like this device that can help so many people. Cause you know, at 30 pounds, there aren't very many women that are going to be very scared of this. They can men women and children you can all use it and we can ma- we can customize it to the amount of weight that you need to help your body recover and be at its absolute best yeah filipino thunder marcus uh <laughs> no surprise he's the strongest guy in the gym he's always messing around with stuff like that you know, yeah he's always just really doing a good job of uh taking care of his body and then when he goes and does his squats he moves really well and um you know for me i, I just have not i've just have done a shitty job of like keeping up on that kind of stuff. You yeah. Know, the stretching the mobility stuff. And I think people maybe don't understand that it doesn't always have to be stretching. No. Uh, yeah. Some of that work that you're doing with tempering in, in a sense is, is, uh, almost a form of stretching cause it's breaking up some tissue and it's going to allow you to move in a better, uh, range of motion as well. Yeah. And it's really when, you know, when you're getting super, super tight and, the fascia and everything's kind of sticking together. It kind of puts you at a high risk of tearing stuff and, yeah. and, and moving the, you know, restricting movement because if you're going to, God forbid you have 700 pounds on your back and your hamstrings, lower back, whatever, isn't functioning the way it needs to. And you're moving improperly. It's going to put too much of a load either on one side or the other, or it's not going to allow you to be hip hinged at the proper angle. And then all of a sudden now you're hurt. Now now my lower back's hurt because I couldn't hit the proper position. This helps get you feeling really good so you can maintain proper position through everything that you're doing. Where can people purchase that thing at? It's uh, ForgeHD.com. ForgeHDF.com. We'll attach it to this uh, podcast as well. 
That's all the time we got. Strength is never a weakness. Weakness is never a strength. Catch you guys later. Awesome.